What's good, everybody? And welcome to a whole brand new thing called Bridge the Gap. And this one is a whole exciting thing for me. So we started doing these interviews. We started talking to people. And the whole goal is to share knowledge, right? The whole goal is to get these people who know a lot more than, say, somebody like me does, who's been around and seen a whole lot of things that a person like me has not, and get them to share that wisdom and knowledge with the whole rest of the world and thus bridging the gap of knowledge out there in the world, taking from the people who know a lot and, in my opinion, who should be spotlighted and put in front of the world to hear because, yo, Nunzio is our guest today. And, oh, boy, is Nunzio a name that, like, I don't even know how come people don't know who this guy is. He's the type of dude that DJ Vlad should have had in there a hundred fucking times talking about everything he's done. Honestly, he's worked on a whole bunch of stuff. I don't want to spoil it too quick, but some seriously big names is attached to his, when you look on the discogs and all this, like some kind of stuff that made me geek out just a little bit. But also with the idea of bridges, something that's really important to me is symbols and everything making sense. So Nunzio over here is representing New York City. Which part of New York are you from? I don't actually know. I'm sorry. Or are you not I'm, in there? I'm from the Bronx, but I'm a, I'm a Jersey cat now. Mm. You know what I mean? I moved uh, probably when I was about 11 years old from the Bronx. Really was born in California, but moved to the Bronx. Like by the time I was four years old, I was living there. So Fresh. And for myself, I'm from Montreal. And what I realized is there is something that Montreal, New York City, and I assume with Jersey involved, they all have a little thing in common, and that's bridges. Bridges are huge for our places. Like, you can't even get on Montreal without a bridge. And then I found out it's kind of like that for most of New York. And I was like, this is the perfect name for it. I digress. So the goal here is honestly to go through your story. And when I say your story, I mean, like, let's pretend that your Wikipedia, which should be a lot, you know, more in existence and flush out what it is. We're creating a piece of sourceable media that people can now link to and add some little things in after. And it all counts. So I wanted to go all the way back with you. Because for me, okay. music is a journey. And the musical journey starts off real, real young. And the truth is, this came from like a whole little story. So I'm sitting there watching uh, my girlfriend wash the dishes. And she's doing this, uh, bopping around. And she's listening to the Black Eyed Peas' uh, that I Got a Feeling song there, right? That shit's like 10 years old now. And I realized that was like the club music for us, right? Like we was up in there dancing like that, like drunk as fuck and all that shit back in the day. And then I realized, oh my gosh, my mom grew up to her club music. And I'm at home listening to her discos and this is and that's when I'm growing up. And my dad had all of his club music bumping all the time. And it's not just the club music because the car is a different vibe. But I realized for me at least and for most of us, the real musical journey is not our choices and preferences. It's the stuff that surrounded us in our youth. This is the inception to it all. So my curiosity to you, Mr. Nunzio, is what was around in your home, in the different environments that started your musical escapades? Wow, uh, that that's um, that's a very good question. Uh, it definitely, you know, I lived with my mom, single mom. You know, dad was around, but unfortunately, he got locked up. But we did see each other a lot. The music that played in, in my household was mostly like soul music. Uh, or or popular music. I'll tell you, Stevie Wonder was big in the house. You know what I mean? And, and I do remember cleaning the house on Sundays and you listen to the station WBLS and it's all like mellow, like soul music. Uh, really, really good stuff though. You know, Marvin Gaye, 
you name it, Aretha Franklin. I know Anita Baker. I remember my mom bringing that album home. Same with Michael Jackson. I remember her bringing the, the Off the Wall album back to the house, and we listened to it on the record player. You know, that's when the record players was the, the main source of music. And y'all, incredible, you know? So I definitely got, I, I'd say it's mostly soul, you know what I mean? Motown type music, you know? But uh, definitely household was open to, to other types of music and, and different genres. So, you know, like Prince, his album came out. They actually took me to see the movie, okay. which I was very surprised by, especially since there was nudity in it, but. How old were you? That was, you know, huh? How old were you? Mm, I got to remember when the movie came out, but I was definitely young, man. It had to be like eight, nine years old That's when cool. that came out. So as you were saying all that, you got me curious about a whole other thing. Because another technology is fascinating, and technology and music are correlated. So throughout this conversation, we're going to go back to technology and distribution methods and things like that. So you mentioned vinyl, right? And mm -hmm. when I'm growing up in the world, it is, let's say, the 2000s when I get into music. So we're already in the Napster era by this point. I'm not quite like growing up with YouTube, but I'm also way past you actually have to buy music if you want to consume it. So I'm curious what it was like, even as a youth for your parents, was it like the radio was on a lot? Is that how y'all got new tunes? Was it just the records? Would you go to the yeah, stores? The, the radio was the main source. You know what I mean? Uh, everything new got played on the radio. And, you know, being that most lyrics weren't uh, so graphic, you know, uh, if it was a hit song, it would definitely be on the radio. So you, there was no problems with that. And I, I definitely, you know, uh, 98.7 and 105.9, which was WBLS back then, were the two main routes you could go. There's a few alternative. CD 101.9 was like the jazz one. You know what I mean? But you, you, your different genres of music, you had a station like dedicated to it. That's you fresh. know what I mean? So yeah, radio was big. You know what I mean? Very big for me. That's cool. And, um, and vinyl too is interesting. So technically you're like before tapes were tapes around. Like, I don't really know my music. Yeah, history Cause that's for the first one. Cause honestly you listen to the radio on your little boom box or your stereo system. Usually there was a cassette, um, deck. Uh, attached to it and I had plenty of cassettes and I would record uh, the music that I liked when it would come on and, and you would like, know it like as soon as you hear the first few notes you run into the joint oh I gotta catch it from the beginning you I, know what I mean eventually double cassettes came out and then it was like I'll just record everything and then I'll edit it later and get the best parts you know Okay, I think we're touching on some beautiful stuff. So how old are you when you start recording this kind of... Are you still like a youth-youth or have we migrated into the teenage Oh, definitely a youth-youth, but there's levels to it. So uh, I say about nine years old, I was uh, buying cassettes and taping stuff off the radio just for my own listening pleasure. You know, I had one of those Sony Walkmans so you could put the cassette in and travel with it. And that's how you really listen to music rarely would listen to the radio because everything I wanted to hear was on the cassettes, you know what I mean? So that was big for, for me, myself. But then you get to like high school and so now I'm um, like- Let's put a pause on high school because I really want to okay. go in, right? That's the goal right. is I want to hear stuff because right now we're, we're passing past a pivotal question. 
is about eight or nine when you start to form your musical identity because we across my interviews have figured out it's about puberty it's around puberty we don't know that but that's when it stops being my parents and it starts being mine and so was it around eight or nine i think for you like you were young then yes. when you started getting into your yeah own eight music. or nine would be it um i always was into music though music was big you know i like to dance so you know you can't dance without music when so did you start like always... so were you like dancing from like childhood childhood like what did you like yeah. start to get into it was that yeah, i mean you know there was there was break dancing all types of ways to dance you know what i mean and there was always parties you know i had mad family mad cousins you know what i'm saying so so believe it or not i only partially know what you're saying because you gotta understand i'm a 33 year old white dude who grew up in montreal I, so like mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that maybe for you is like, that's just what it is. For me, Typical, it's like, right? holy shit, you got to tell me more because you're breaking down why these rappers are saying this shit. Because honestly, as I talk to y'all in New York more, it really adds layers of context into the world of growing up. Because I could not tell you what it's like to be an eight-year-old at that time in anywhere. And I think you said Harlem, Bronx. I'm sorry, I forgot which borough you said. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Bronx. So you said that mm -hmm. like. You go to me, I'm living in apartments in Montreal. It is just nothing alike. So what is it like? Because yo, you said breakdancing at such a young age? That's not my reality mm -hmm. at all. Tell us about being a kid and how the music was around you. Like, I think people need to hear this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, you got... So even in the schools, there'd be parties. You know what I mean? So knowing the lyrics was always a big thing. And knowing the right lyrics made you like cool, you know what I'm saying? Because people would just mouth words and know the chorus, but not necessarily know all the words. So if you knew all the words, you could really act up. And you know, you dance while you acting out the words and trying to make dances that resemble what uh, the words are saying, you know what I mean? So, you know, uh, definitely always had like a crew of people. You know, I was always one of those cats that, that had the circle around him when he started to dance. I was just good at it, you know, naturally, I guess. But you definitely watch videos to learn new moves and all of that. And video access, you know, videos weren't big back then. Videos was a big production. So videos was like Friday night at 1130 and it ended at midnight. You know what I'm saying? So you, you, you had a half an hour a week to watch something then you had video music box which was like that right after school i gotta get home because it came on at four in the afternoon but that was how i i got i got up on hip-hop and you know pretty much the videos that they put out would always contain people dancing so that it was a double you know double positive because i would not only learn some um, some new music to search for or learn the lyrics from watching the video, but I would also learn new dances at the same time watching it. So I'm not gonna lie, you just dropped what I call a knowledge nugget on us all. That's one of these moments where you said something so fucking insightful that it unveiled a layer of perception and at least my mind that I'm sure the minds of others. Music videos confuse me a lot in the current era because they're basically movie productions mm -hmm. and honestly half the time I have nothing to do with the song and they're honestly kind of boring to me. That's me. A lot of people might like yeah. them and that's totally fine. But when people explain to me almost the history of it and why a little bit things happen. So dance is a huge part of hip hop. It's maybe one of the, the pillars that I'm less familiar with as a person, but it's a pillar. Mm -hmm. It really is a fundamental element of this. 
And I never even considered the fact that a music video is a mechanism to share the dance moves with the people in an era prior to internet. Like, Nunzio, thank you for sharing that kind of profound insight with us. That's a huge thing. And it even explains it a lot of the tone and style of the music videos of this era. Because, again, I never would have put two and two together like that. Yeah, it's, it's more of a fancy visual now. But I will say this, when, when videos first started out, it literally was just the person singing, maybe like a background and they put stuff in the background. Uh, it wasn't that high tech, you know, it, but when people started having relevant songs, they wanted to make like many movies out of them. So they would actually, the content of the video would reflect the words that they were saying. So, you know, it elevated and we kind of took a step back now, but you know, there are some people still that do videos uh, with the, where the footage is actually significant to what the song is. You know what I mean? Right. So what was the song that made you decide to go, I'm going to take all of this stuff more seriously. I got to start recording this shit. I got to start building my fucking catalog. What was the song that's, because that's to me the identity former. For me, Cisco's right, well, the thong um, song. So what's your one? <laughs> this is tough. Because honestly, the first song that got me motivated to even rhyme or do any type of music stuff was Roxanne, Roxanne by UTFO. Okay. And the, the story behind that is once they put that out, then there became the real Roxanne and she had the rebuttal to it. You know what I mean? Then they had Roxanne Shantae, who was the actually the real Roxanne, you know what I'm saying? Which was... Very ironic, but then there was these battles going on back and forth, you know? So uh, I think uh, the main song that got me really like, okay, like hip hop is it, was a battle between KRS-One and MC Shan. So you had mm. uh, the bridge. What were you listening to before that? Then the bridge is over, you know what I'm saying? So that, was like really uh, what got me motivated. I literally would listen to those two songs back to back for like an hour straight. You know, we take what did you listen to besides rap though, none back then. I mean, I listened to all types of genres, but it definitely uh, once hip hop got into my scope, like that was it. You know what I mean? I was definitely like, I'm sticking with this. You know, it got um, to me so much earlier. That's fair. We're the same age, basically. Yeah, you're right, dude. Fair enough. Um, anyway, so I think it's fascinating that that, because you just triggered a whole other thing for me, right? Battle culture. This is something that's very mm -hmm. fascinating because as I learned talking to Flacco Bayo in his interview, actually, this was like a lot more like in the streets real in your world where like when you would see people, you would have to be able to prove your skills and test things. So like this whole culture doesn't really exist in my life. I know it existed in Montreal, so I don't want to downplay that. I know there are a bunch of cats in Montreal who grew up like that. I did not. So why don't you tell us a bit more about that battle culture side of things? Because if that's your inception point, that must be an insane time. Like that bridge battle series, that's huge. That's like everybody yeah, knows exactly. about it huge. So what's it like being a kid watching that? And honestly, if you, all right, so let's go back even further than that. So you had crews, you know, and this is the, I didn't find out about this till later on, but you had crews that used to get up, the Treacherous Three, Furious Fives. And they would do live shows, you know what I mean? And the in the live shows, these crews would battle each other. And they had dance routines. 
they had uh, more than a, than a few people in the group. So certain people would go in on another person from another group and it would be like tag team almost. And then they, they even evolved to where the whole crew would actually interact with each other to talk about that crew, you know what I mean? So it became a very, very big thing. And honestly, it was basically a part of it. And, and really, it was a more of a braggadocious thing, bragging and boasting. But, you know, in the in, in, when you get caught up in bragging and boasting, sometimes you end up demeaning the other person that you're bragging to, especially if you're in competition. So I understood. But, like, one of the things you should know is I lived on 1600 Sedgwick Avenue and on the 22nd floor. So uh, late at night, it was all, especially on the weekends, I would hear this music playing. But, okay. you know, because of how I was up, it would echo. But you catch a little bit of it. Definitely couldn't understand the words, but you could catch the beat. And that was actually Cool Hurt spinning in the park. Holy the shit. the park was, like, right behind my fucking house. So. so what you're saying is you were literally living and hearing the organic birth of yes. hip-hop playing out beneath you in a literal... Dude, you're a fucking legend. Like, that's some history. Yeah, but without knowing it. That's what's the crazy part. You know what I'm saying? I didn't find that out till later on. Like, oh, that's what that was. Like, but you amazing. did. You <laughs> did tell us something crazy right there that, again, I never considered, right? And that's the idea of these crews and it being more than just MCs. Because, you know, let's be real. In this day and age, a lot of us think rapper first. We forget about the brilliance of producers. I know that I sound like shit before my sound engineer, and he's the most wonderful part of my process. Let's be real. So I'm team sound engineer. I'm team producer. I get how valuable they are, but... The fact that you said dancers and the whole production, I'm like, holy shit. Like, like it's almost the like production. we've stripped away a lot of the, almost, I don't want to demean it, but the circus elements that made it a bigger production and a bigger show. We seem to have stripped that away in the modern era. I don't know if that's a fair assessment. Can I say one, can I, can I add one thing I, real quick and I'll keep my mouth shut after this. Sure. The, the battle thing actually started really with, with the B-Boys, the breakdancing, because they mm -hmm. were breaking and they were battling before people were rapping. And it just, that right. was the culture. Like people, you know, the MC saw kids battling. So they, they brought it right into their shit. Yeah. It definitely leaked into the whole, um, rapping steez once it started to really evolve. But what you got to realize too, like if you're the, the, you feel you're the best dancer and another person feels they're the best dancer, you're going to have a dance off. You know what I mean? So it really makes sense. It's like I'm trying to gain the title, even if it's in a in a two block radius. I'm the best on these two blocks. You gonna go against the, the other girls. person who thinks they're the best on those two blocks at some point in time to really establish who is. Because just talking about it is one thing, but actually doing it and proving it is like real accolades you know what i'm saying but that's crazy right because even with that like that means that like in a sense there's so much of the vocal side that ends up coming into it that owes everything to the dance and the production side right because yeah. if you it's don't all have integrated like if it you was don't... definitely that's why you know i call hip-hop a culture because there's certain aspects of it that leak into different things, but the, the 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 culture is still involved in it. Like you're gonna break dance and battle somebody, but at the end, you're not leaving like all mad at them and all of this. And it's the same with the MCs. You might have an attitude, like cause of how badly you lost or whatever, but you're not gonna attack the person that freaking did that to you. You're mm. gonna be like, I gotta go home. I gotta, 
it, it make my next rhyme got to be 10 times better than whatever he did. You know what I mean? Which, which makes everybody greater. You know what I mean? I think it's really cool that you said that because you just dropped a secret to success, which is uh, basically um, if you don't win, don't give up. Go home. Practice harder. So thank you yeah. also for sharing that in the middle. I love that kind of shit. Seriously, Nunzio, this is amazing. I feel like I'm just learning real culture, like the kind of shit that you can't find because unfortunately not a lot of people have taken the effort to capture it. So you sharing your time with us is next fucking level. But let's go back to your story a little bit. And we're going to tie into all these elements as they progress. So you're, you have this battle culture around you. You're a competitive person now because the dancing, the music, everything's around you, the environment, which is crazy. Because, again, the birth of his hip hop is starting in the same environment that you're in, which is which is just doubled down. Awesome. Um, so you start recording on these tapes. Is that how it starts for you or are you dancing first? And then that migrates into the tapes. Uh, the dancing was definitely first. You know, um, I was heavily into sports and the music was just one of those things that was always around it. In, 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 the, in the area that I lived, you, you would always have like a person. If you were out playing football, basketball, whatever sport it was, somebody would always come around with the radio and start blasting music. And it would always be either something you didn't hear and you'd be like, yo, what is that? But, you know, it was like you would learn on the fly just by going outside, too. So, you know, yeah. family functions, whatever it is, music is a big part of everything. Somebody is always outside with a huge, like, I don't even know how you carry that radio around. You know, they called that's why they called it a boom box, because it was so freaking loud. You know what I mean? So, like, I understand it. It kind of gets embedded into you, you know? Even if you didn't... Um, like a song you might know all the words to it because other people like it and you hear it all the time mm, that's very similar to what it's like to be in stores these days i'm not gonna lie but i believe <laughs> that having the you know the people at the boom boxes who are in touch with things carry it around is much better and i think it's interesting that you even shared that because something that i dislike in my city is um the, the local public transit system has an active effort to stop young people from playing their music on their phones. And I don't like that personally. I feel like let the young people blast their annoying music. I was a young person and I blasted my annoying music. Let them do their thing. And I noticed that it's pretty cultural here. Like we don't, we don't, I'm, I'm saying Montreal. I don't know about New York. It could be completely different or New Jersey. Um, but we, we really have an active effort to stop people from playing music publicly and loudly. I don't know why it is, but it's so fascinating to me that it's such an integral part of your original story. And considering the career you go on to have, it's like, imagine if the whole world was silenced, how, what, how it would have changed the entire trajectory of like your life. That's, that's so interesting just to compare the then and now. So as you get into the tapes though, uh, how does that work? Why did you start doing it? What like made you go to, down that route? I mean, you just want to have the access to it. You know, um, learning the words, like I said, knowing the words is always a big part, uh, especially when you go to parties. Being that I was the person that would, you know, dance a lot and probably have a few people come around and start watching you do what you do. Knowing the words was like the extra icing on top. You know what I mean? Because you'd be mouthing the words while you're dancing, especially if you're dancing with a, a female. You know what I mean? It's like, she's like, oh, you know all the words? Like, that's what's up. It, it leads to conversation. It's a good thing. It definitely bridges the gap. 
<laughs> I like that. Thank you for that. I, that was the first bridge the gap pun in the history of bridge the gap, and that goes to Nunzio forever. Um, so I think it's cool because I remember being a youth and believe it or not, recording off of the radio and getting the guy talking over it with his fucking talk over the part thing and all of that. Um, but then you said something about two tapes. And I guess as you move into your teenage years, um, somewhere you go from being a fan who wants to dance and melding off the words uh, to I want to make music or something. I'm assuming maybe I'm wrong, but I assume in your teenage years, it's usually when it starts for somebody uh, in that, you mm -hmm. know. So tell us a bit more about that transition. Like, how did you go, fuck it, I'm going to edit these recordings later. That's the moment I want to know more about. How did you get there? All right, well, in the beginning, it was basically I would uh, hit record. There was no dubbing. I didn't have a dubbing system. So it was like you, you would tape the radio and hope that you caught what you caught. And being that you could fast forward and rewind, you would just fast forward and rewind. But it, over time you know, you, you kind of ruin the tape. The tape, you know, the more you play it, uh, the less uh, uh, quality uh, sounding it is. And especially with aging. So you got to take care of that stuff. So, you know, I had some cleaning kits and all of that stuff to keep the radio clean and I, everything okay, I was okay, playing. Let's, let's pause there. What's in a cleaning kit for your radio back in the day? All right, so you would, there was a cassette that you would put in whatever it was you drop some liquid because there's a there's a little brush on it um, inside of it. So you put the liquid on the brush, and you you just play the tape for however they long. They don't know. Minutes, and it cleans your tape deck, gets all the dust out. They have no cetera, idea. Sterilizes it. Exactly. It's, it's one of those things, dude. You got you know there's a science to it because you could ruin a bunch of stuff. You if you had. If your cassette player wasn't up to par, and this has happened to me before, let's say you give this cassette your favorite joint to your boy, like, yo, play this on your stereo system. But his stereo system, he ain't clean it out in years. He'll play it, and then you're going to hear this. Like, oh, wait, oh, yo. And then you're going to open it up, and the tape will not be inside the cassette anymore. It's going to be coming out of it. And then you got to do this whole thing where you're trying to get it out the tape deck then you got to twist it back in in place. Then sometimes it flips and gets reversed. It's it's crazy, dude. I literally sometimes yeah. had to cut the tape and then use a little piece of tape, which is very hard to do, and piece it back together and hope that it doesn't snap. You know if, what I mean? If it counts, I got some people watching on my side, and they're all relating to this tape because, believe it or not, everybody over 30 has gone through this. We are all relating yeah. together on this because I've done it. I don't know. I don't think I ever went as far as the cleaning kit, but when you started talking yeah. about rolling back in tape and that, I'm like, yeah, right there. Yeah, once it happened to me once, I was like, nah, cleaning kit. Like, we need this. This is why that happened. I'm finding but out. Like, I can't have this happen to me. These are... These, these freaking cassettes were like gold. I couldn't go buy the records, you know what I mean? Mm. My mom wasn't like, hey, I'll get it for you. It was a raft, you know what I'm saying? Oh, shit, that's a big thing, eh? This is where, again, my privileged Spotify using ass doesn't really, like, remember that the world used to be like that. Um, but how does, how does it, like... How do you get to the point, though, again, where, like, you want to start editing stuff? Also, can you define dub? Let's pretend that the people watching all are not okay. going to know your music jargon. So simple. It's just recording. A dub is, is recording. You know what I mean? Dubbing is recording. So uh, 
when you have the two cassettes, I'm basically transferring what I want and dubbing it onto another tape. And then I stop that one tape and dig to the next song that I really want. And then I dub it onto there. So that's that's the concept of dubbing. You know what I mean? Like, so like you, you're taking the pieces that you like and placing it onto something else that's like your creation now. And you were doing this as a teenager. Oh, you do. Uh, let me tell you. All right. So yes. can I can I get into the high school? To the Absolutely, thing? please. All right. So this is where it was like phenomenal for me and and i gotta bring my man into this conversation big zoo who you've also seen um hosting the the end of the week open mic as well as frio dub he was like a, a a person that we became friends in high school we were in the same class and we became friends then we actually had a study hall together so study hall is basically the 45 minutes that you would usually spend in a class learning something it's like this is like a free period for you. You got to go into the library or the the cafeteria and you sit down and you're supposed to study and do stuff like that. You got to be quiet. You can't be too loud. You can have conversations, but you basically whispering, you know what I mean? So myself and Zoo were big fans of hip hop music. And at the time you had Friday, Saturday, was the nights. So you'd have from like seven, eight o'clock to 11 midnight, sometimes 10 o'clock, you know, it all depended. But those were the two nights and on both stations, they would play. So you had, at that point it was 98.7 and WBLS, you know what I'm saying? So these two stations, you can't record both of them at the same time. Like if a wax song came on 98.7, I would go to the other station to hear what they were playing. As soon as I got disinterested, I go back to 98.7, but then your favorite song that you was waiting to tape all night, it would be halfway into it. You know what I mean? So you'd be like, oh, I missed it. And now it's like, they're not playing that song again, you know what I mean, that night. And they might not play it the next night because you only had this certain span of time. Really, it started off as a two-hour show. So you had two hours at the same time, both stations to fit in a whole bunch of like new stuff because it was like, you know, hip-hop was popping then. So there was a lot of music coming out. So between Friday and Saturday, you've got really basically four hours of jumping back and forth to hopefully catch the song that you've been dying to record so you can hear it back. So myself and Zoo would coordinate. I'd be like, yo, I'm going to listen to 98.7. You listen to 105.9 or, and, you know, uh, uh, and we'll freaking um, get together and see what each of us has. So now we're not missing songs, but he'd come and be like, yo, they played this song that they didn't play on 98.7. So in the study hall, we would literally sit and listen to all this stuff. You know what I mean? And, and, and I had the, the cassette, a York's cassette player with the speaker on the back. So instead of us whispering, I would just play the speaker low and we would be listening back to all of the songs. And, you know, it eventually elevated to Bobito and Stretch on Thursdays and like Underground Railroad. There was a whole bunch of shows that started popping up. I got a question about this, just in general for everyone watching. Uh, what's the time frame that this is happening like in years? Like when is this going on? What kind of hits are you guys recording? Uh, dad, there's so many, dude. Like, 
We talking like LL Cool J era, the Public Enemy. Oh shit! To even to um, 84, 85, 86. Right. You know what I mean? 88, like, 89. Yeah. I, I mean, it was before, way before that. I'm gonna say so. With with me and Zoo, that would be around 86, 86, 87. You okay. know what I'm saying? Um, Hip hop blew up. That Breakdancing like got public in no. in '82. It was all over. No, the I know. Before that, that's when I was in the Bronx. No, so I, I know. That, I'm just I was saying. on my own. You know what I mean? We I just elevated once I met Zoo. <laughs> you know what I mean? So instead of one person, it was two people, then you could accomplish more. You know what I mean? So that was like '86, '87 when we were doing all of that. But before that, I, I'll go as far back as. Uh, I'd say like 81, 82. That's you know what crazy. I mean? That so I like was doing all that. You've literally basically heard all of it. Like when I say all of it, basically. I mean all you've you've consumed all of it. Like since the inception to today, you've been around and part of this culture and that is amazing. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And this is the thing, man. They they literally there was always some uh, a, there's a bunch of people on the block, the older cats, right? They would literally have the cassettes of those battles between Treacherous Three, Furious Five, so on and so forth. Oh my gosh! You know I, what I mean? So I saw that Netflix show where they kind of talk about this, the the takedown or the rundown or whatever. So I kind of know what you're talking about because they touch mm -hmm. on that in the show. And you're saying yeah. you lived that. Is it was that show accurate at all? Do you feel like did you watch it? Yes. Yes. Do you feel like it's a good representation of what you saw? Yeah, on? and you know what I really like about it was instead of me explaining all of this to my younger brothers. They watched that show and they learned a whole bunch. Then they were asking me questions and were interested. You know what I mean? So that actually seeing it made people more interested in learning about it. So I, I definitely give them props. You know, it's a shame that, that these things get taken off the air for whatever reason. But it was like, it was very educational. You know what I mean? And I can't say that everything in it was exact, but it definitely resembled my uh, upbringing you know to a high very high degree all right so there's one more uh main pillar that we haven't touched on and i don't know how involved you are in it but for the sake of it what is your relationship with graffiti art or i'm not really a graffiti artist at all i had a lot of friends that could i was i was i wasn't the person that could draw and, and do all of that stuff you know what i mean i was definitely the dancer i was definitely into the music but Everything else associated was just like stuff that I'd appreciate, but I wasn't even attempting to do. Like my cousin used to go bombing on trains and stuff late at night. And, you know, he was like 11, 10, 11 years old trying to do that were, with all the older cats. So. Were you ever around for those kinds of things or were you just left it alone? Nah, my, you know, my, I probably could have snuck out the house and done this type of stuff because my mom worked at night. But I wasn't taking those chances. You know, uh, honestly, I've definitely done like I'm supposed to come straight home after school and then go to the park and hang out and do other stuff that I shouldn't be doing. And a damn near every time somebody in the neighborhood would walk by and be like, Rashid, what the hell are you doing out here? You know you're supposed to be at home. Your mom going to fucking whoop your ass. Yo, and dead ass. It's a com real community. You got literally, it ain't no spies. It's family, you know. There's, everybody is your family. If your mom ain't around, somebody's picking on you, you know, that person's going to get their ass kicked by somebody that knows your mom. Family, you know what I mean? So 
Yo, the village yo, thank you for sharing that because all of these extra things man this really adds that shade and context to all of us about like because this music is a result of this culture and environment right so a lot of these early nuances a lot of the things people were doing they're confusing when you try to go back in time and make sense of it today so talking to you really is a pleasure um i don't know so you guys were basically around the whole time of hip-hop you didn't go through with the graffiti but you did cover the other three elements because i heard your vocals this uh, for all knowing this man can spit an off the dome and shit like puts most people to shame like just putting it out there because uh, his production fucking stellar beyond like stellar so Thanks. we're talking about a guy who crushes like all of this shit really really well so like i don't know i'm real excited about that um Anyway, so let's go back to Big Zoo and you strategically teaming up and applying a project mm -hmm. management strategy of Deploy and Conquer to optimize the research and development of a better palette for your music. Because you guys applied some corporate America shit to your music acquisition, and mm -hmm. so kudos to that at a young age. So you guys yeah. are creating your playlists. You guys are doing your things. So you're trying to stay in the know already. So I guess there's a lot of power in being the guy who has the tape of the new song. Mm -hmm. uh, and exactly. I, so, so I guess the beginning of dubbing is cutting out the songs from these mixes, right? In your lives, is mm -hmm. that? So, how does right. that start? Okay, so all right, so uh, we would get up, we have the cassettes. We already knew which ones we wanted from each other because of the study hall. So yeah, he's either coming to my house or I'm going to his. Now we're going to transfer the tapes, <clears throat> but eventually, it evolved because now. You had DJs that would play the original sample that they made these songs from. And, you know, back then, most of the the music you heard, there weren't too many changes in it. It was like, we're just going to jack this record and take the best elements and put them together, and you're going to rhyme over it. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit? Like, just pretend like you're talking to people who have no idea, like a level mm -hmm. one. Give us the 101 version of what you just said. The 101 version is uh, a lot of your your parents' favorite records, you know what I'm saying? Because uh, we all had record collections in our house. Like this, basically having a DJ play a song that the, that uh, another MC had rhymed over and had taken, and he took the best part, the open part of the actual record. That's what we used to call it, because that means there was no singing or vocals on top of it it was just instrumental so they would take that piece of the music as an instrumental and create an instrumental you know and that's what they would rhyme over sometimes you take the vocals and the chorus etc but basically they were just taking the open part of a of a of a popular song and looping it so once that uh we discovered that this is how they were doing it you start going home and looking through your records. And then that's what brought on the whole production thing. Oh. So now you're looking through records, like you found the record that you liked, but now there's seven other songs, you know, 12 other songs on that record. You end up going through it like, damn, I wonder if another song has an open part like that. And then when you find it, that's where you go to. So the same way I was dubbing cassettes, now we're doing that at Zoo's house off a cassette because the cassette player and the turntable were both hooked up. Once again, a York's stereo. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he would, we would bring, I would bring a record through, or he would have some records at the house, and we would catch that part of the instrumental, record, 
will stop and then you bring it back and try to catch it again. And you know, you might get like three good loops in a row, but then you got that one that's a little messed up, but you know, you accept it. Like, all right, it's too tough to like be perfect. You're literally breaking down the like beat making. This is how yo, a lot of people did this. Like you gotta understand, <laughs> dude. I don't fucking almost next to was tape culture. Yeah, was tape. Because this is like how everybody was doing it back then, right? All of the beginnings, all yeah, the records. A lot of people. Because like I except do it... for the people in the studios. And honestly, I'll be honest with you. If we had a DJ, it would have been totally different. You know what I'm saying? Because a DJ would just cut up the two records and go back and forth, which is your Grandmaster Flash Still doing it. Is, is probably the person you could um, actually give that credit to. You know what I mean? But I'm sure there's other DJs that were thinking the same thing and trying the same thing. So but Grandmaster Flash took it a step further by altering the actual turntable. Okay, we're going to pause on the Grandmaster Flash thing and come back to that because there was a lot. That lot's going on. So basically, you have two versions of this now. You have a production where the DJ is effectively a band and the beat making mm -hmm. process is the DJ doing the thing live. So that's how it would all get done. The DJ would mix, the rapper would rap, and they would create this whole fucking production thing. But then you guys are coming through on some, we can't afford to do that shit, which is cool because most people in life can't afford to do this shit. So what you're doing is far more interesting. And you, yep. as the youth of today are doing, looked at the available resources around you and said, okay, so we got this fucking device here that plays the records. And I watched the breakdown, like I said, you saw how Grandmaster Flash is doing the fucking chalk thing. You, you, so they explained it all there. If you guys want some real reference, seriously watch that show and you'll have a better context of what he's talking about or what we're talking about here. Um, and then you guys would find the parts that were fucking just good beats, right? Just whatever sounds and whatever fucking record. Yeah. And then you would have your blank tape and you would play, record, record until you got your, your, your bar or whatever it mm -hmm. might be. Yep. Wow. That's how it was exactly. done. So like that was when that's I picture how like done. that's how it started. And even then you have elevations. You know what I mean? So I that's what we what were doing that. in the beginning. Right. But then then um you had uh these records that came out called Ultimate Breakbeats. So Ultimate Breakbeats were the best, most open, craziest drum having, dope ass loops. Even though people had used them, there were other parts of the record that they had on there that they didn't use. So you would be like, oh, I'm going to loop this part. You know what I mean? So now you're, you're actually getting, being fed about uh, possibly five different songs on one record. You know what I mean? And it's different artists and what have you, but it's like the cream of the crop at the time. So you didn't have to search as hard. But, you know, you knew if you bought an Ultimate Breakbeats, like, I'm going to make a beat off of one of these songs for sure. So I got another question then. And it's it's one of those kind of, like, observational questions. So today, when you think about music production courses, everyone goes on YouTube and they learn out these little courses and they go, do this, do that, do this, do that. But it's all, like, choose your target sound and try to recreate that, right? That's effectively what right. I see in basic courses. But in your world... Um, you're almost incentivized to go find the record or the style or the sound that nobody's heard before. So you're going to yes. have to maybe go buy punk rock and you're going to have to go buy metal and you're going to have to go buy this and that. That thing's just far outside of it, right? And in a way mm -hmm. where I don't think people today are doing that in the same level. So I guess, is that true? Is that how it worked for you? Yeah, to a degree. Um, 
when you um so you hear um I'm bad by LL Cool J and it's got like this rock whole thing to it you know what I mean but it's hard and you're like oh that's dope that opens your mind now because you're like I haven't heard anything like this before but now you're like wait a minute my mom got some rock records like let me listen to these because before that you were looking for a certain type of record so you know once uh people started sampling different um types of music and then you hear it and they flip it and you're like oh this is one of my favorite songs now in your head you're like i can't just limit myself to one genre of music i can't just be like i'm looking for james brown you know what i'm saying that was like the first person you were looking for because of the drums drums was always a big part of of the hip hop thing so like once you hear you go outside the box but then when you go outside the box you find something that's hot and you're like you remain outside the box you know what i mean you mm. keep dipping in and out and doing your thing you know what i mean so that that it basically it led to actual going out and purchasing records once uh i had a job you know what i'm saying fresh so i see a keyboard behind you are you also yes. involved in instruments at this time, or is it more of this is how your production process No, I is? the only instrument I use is called an MPC. Now, I know notes and all of this, and I could play a note or two, at least to complete a beat that I'm trying to make. And I'll experiment a lot, especially if I'm playing it on piano. But uh, basically, pads okay. are what I use. That's fresh though. That's fucking dope though. Still, I honestly, uh, you have to have a lot of rhythm. I have tried yes. and I am very bad is what I learned. And I got, I had to check my ego when I thought I had tapping rhythm until I tried out that kind of stuff. Um, that's cool. So you're a teenager with big zoo and you guys are literally making fucking beats in wherever at home taking advantage mm -hmm. and leveraging available tech i keep saying that because i want people to hear that and go oh shit i can just go do it instead of going i have to buy it because that's what you guys mm -hmm. did you started producing yeah. that's fucking huge because yo it went on to really cool things for your life and you started when you were young and you didn't let obstacles stop you you were just actually just like fuck it let's get it done which is just super right. respectable so how did it go from like a hobby to a thing so uh, I met a guy at, the, at my high school, Teaneck High School, a guy named John Bay. John Bay was uh, already in a group, uh, which is the main source. So he was a part of the main source. But when he moved out to Jersey and stuff started happening for him, he eventually was released from the group. He was still like friends with them and all that. And he took me to the studio a few times with them. So I met Large Professor and um, went to the studio actually one time. This is a great story. So I go to the studio. Rakim is one of my favorite MCs ever. You know what I mean? And I go to the studio and this dude is literally piecing together a song called The Ghetto. So he had done it originally and Rakim already did his vocals to it. But somebody had messed up the timing on the tape. So the beat was was basically lagging behind the vocal. And he had to come in and redo the beat so that it fit over the vocal. And I was there that time. And I remember, like, the first uh, lines that he says is, Planet Earth is my place of birth, born to be the sole controller of the universe. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, geeking in this freaking studio. But then when I left, 
I went to school bragging. Yo, I heard the new Rock Kim. Like, it goes like this. Mad people didn't believe it. Few people did. But when that song came out, they was like, yo, you was in the studio with Rock Kim. You know how the story always elevates. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm like, no, not in the studio with him, but with Large Professor. And he was like the one that um, Hold up. pieced the, the You're in together. the studio with Large Professor, like the Large Professor. The Large Professor. Extra P now. <laughs> so like you were as a young guy knowing that dude. Wow. Yeah, it was, yo, he put us, myself, how about this? Myself, my mom, and Zoo are in the first video he ever did called Watch Roger Do His Thing. Oh my gosh, that's nuts. Yo, we're going to definitely check that out after. Um, yo, my mom shit. got more time than I did. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, wow, how did you meet him? How did that even come? How did that happen? Through, the, uh, through this guy, okay, John Bay, right. like, Sorry, I got so a little... John Bay would have me come to his house and he's like, yeah, I see you into the music and y'all be trying to make beats. And he pulled out this instrument called a Casio SK-5. Mm. So I already had a good... Tell us what a Casio SK-5 is. So it's a, it's a little keyboard, but it had sampling capabilities. But the sampling was only, I think it was five seconds, right? So I thought it was less seconds. Huh? I thought it was less than that. I thought it was like nah, a second it was, and a half, it was, maybe. Maybe, all right, maybe. Maybe it was two or three. But I, I remember doing this. I had uh, like 50 records that I already messed with with the cassette. And then he came, I went to his house with 10 of those records. And he was like, watch, we're going to flip these. I was like, cool. And yo, you would get the turntable and spin it as fast as you could at that part. But now you got to do it evenly too. So it's crazy. So you're spinning it, but you got to do it at an even rate. So when you play it back, slow down, because you could change the pitch on the SK5. So you would go mad fast and it'd be like, but then when you play it back at the lowest one, it'd be like, cat, 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 And then you just keep hitting it to loop it. And then that's how I started making better tapes with this little SK-5, and now you're playing it into a cassette player. You know what I mean? So it, it also taught me engineering because we had to figure all this out to transfer it. Okay. So what I'm understanding then is you went from production, where I'm going to call it production. I don't know. You're going to have – part of my questions later on is you're going to break down some we of this jargon for us. We went from dubbing okay. to production. Okay, so production, just find it. What's the difference? Like, just because okay, I don't really so the, know all the words right. <laughs> so the dubbing is basically you're you're taking what you're given, right? And you're and you're you're looping it and doing what you can with it, right? When you're doing production, now I am. I'm taking more than what I'm given. You understand? Because now I have that 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 freaking um, SK-5. So now I take that loop and I loop it and then I play it back to the speed that I want it and I do that now into a cassette. But then I'll do that, I'll take another sample now and I'll do the same thing with the record. Now this time it'll be a flute and now I'm playing the flute on top of that track and creating something new. You understand? Before I was limited. I couldn't add stuff on top because it wouldn't sound right. But now, because of this SK-5, I could layer things. You know what I mean? With the cassette. 
Okay, so effectively, production, in a sense, is layering sounds to create the perfect result that you're yes. desiring for, which yes. is really similar to photo editing, which is something I'm learning about through work. And uh, so mm -hmm. I think that's fucking cool. Um, They're all related, dude. Video, everything. Like, if you know one, you can definitely do the other because the whole thought process is the same. All right. So tell us, like, uh, about – walk us through, like, making an early beat how would you think about it from like A to Z, like at this point in your life? Just like pretend like, you know, just it's a tutorial in a sense. And you just go, you know, first I would do this, then I would do that. You know, just walk us through one of those. All right. Well, first thing I'm doing is buying records or going through records that uh, my mother owned or other people in the family owned and looking for something that appeals to the ear that I'm like, I would want to spit on top of that. That's the first thing you do. Then you find that piece. And now you're like, how can I loop this piece so that I can extend the piece that I have now? So now you're extending it. And then you're going to find other pieces from other records or maybe another piece from the same record so that it changes. You understand? So I don't want to just rhyme over this loop and just keep doing that. I want to rhyme over the loop with something else on top of it that separates a chorus and accentuates maybe some words that I say. So now you're you're adding layers to it that you could strip away and put back in to create like um, sections of the beat. There's an intro, there's the verse, here's the chorus, here's another verse, chorus. Okay, I'm gonna get crazy on the outro and throw a bunch of different stuff in it. Or in the middle of my verse, I want everything to drop out and I just want a horn hit. So now you're doing like actual production because you're removing elements and placing elements in hopes of accentuating whatever it is you're going to write to it or have written already. So I'll have to ask a question that I probably should have asked a little bit before. But were you rhyming mm -hmm. this whole time? Yes, I definitely would say I was really like I had rhyme books uh, by the time I was in fifth grade. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And and I'll be honest with you. Um, so eighth grade, uh, I went on a trip for ABC, which is a better chance. It's basically, instead of high school, you got basically, it's like going to college. So it's like pristine schools in Massachusetts and upstate. Um, but you you actually stay there as a student, but you're in high school. And, and because I was one of the smarter kids in the school, there was a group of us that would travel to go see these schools because we were applying to them. And there was a dude named Neftali Fuentes, and he also rhymed. So this was my first ever attempt at battling and having to actually freestyle. Before that, I would write stuff out and have ideas, but there was no real formula to it. But when I had to battle him, he was like, yo, battle me. Like, oh, I was like, all right, I'll do it. Like, I was excited. Like, I got somebody to do this with. And yo, we literally rhymed for two hours straight. Like, oh, you won that round. Oh, you won that round. Eventually, I had to give up because this dude, did. he would not stop rhyming. And I was like, yo, like, now my brain is tired. Like, I think I was killing you, but I, I, uh, I concede. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> So you really were just rapping this whole time. Um, were you, was it like a lot of battling going on on top of that? So let's go back, rewind to let's pretend we had the whole yeah, conversation. I, I'd say it was, it, was, it was always like, if you were coming up, 
it was almost like battling was the way to come up. It was like you you had to be able to defend yourself if somebody came at you. You know, it's just I don't even know, you know, if that was the proper way to think, but that's what most people would do. If you, you know, as far as writing writtens, that's cool. And you can have your little written about yourself and it'd be fresh and all, but somebody is always gonna come at you with the freestyle element of it. And in which case that's where the battle ensues. But it's like, you can't prepare for somebody you don't know and you don't know that you're gonna battle them. So you have to create like little lines that you like, I could throw this at you. Oh, you fat and overweight. So I got these big lines. You know what I'm saying? That I got in the back, in the back pocket or what have you. But you know, it was part of it. That that's basically where the freestyle element came in. You yeah, know what I mean? I'm not gonna lie. That's another knowledge nugget, right? So you have me going then and now type shit there, right? Because now it's the internet. That means that on the real freestyling's a risk. It's it's a risk in a way that's different because they're gonna analyze your bars in a way where in the moment it's gone. I talked to some battle people along the ways, and one of the things I learned about judging and shit is once the internet came in people could really think about things in a way that judges in a room couldn't and that changed a whole lot um but if the culture if we go back to that is that you have to be able to off the dome kind of just rip apart a person or be dope based on the environment because that's what's being demanded of and if we think about it it really is the gatekeepers of life are often going to be the people and that's what the people expect and that's the only way to go through with it it explains so much about why it's such a huge part of the culture to a lot of people maybe that it's different up here where like at least for me i got my music through music videos you know everything's polished and shiny and new so you don't necessarily see the other side of where that raw kind of leads into like a tikal or something like that mm-hmm. so Thank you for sharing that, cause that's really cool. So you were battling in the streets back then. Like, was this like an everyday thing? Like, was like or? No, nah, it wasn't that? an everyday thing, but you know, it, it was something that would definitely come up. You know. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So, so, were you at all interested in writing songs? Like, cause you said when you were making yeah, your not, beats, but it not really. Like... Wasn't really organized till I met Zoo. And it was like I had somebody to feed ideas off of. And he would be like, yo, you write about this. I'll write about that. And it was like dope. And Zoo was already known for for rapping and freestyling when I met him. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, I definitely went with a party to, with him to a party. And um, I want to say it was in Inglewood. Yes, it was in Inglewood. And... He literally knew Kwame, who was super popular at the time, and he knew um, Redhead Kingpin, and they and Redhead Kingpin uh, had actually pulled him on stage to like freestyle rhyme, you know what I'm saying? So, to me, that was like amazing, and I was blown away. But it's like, yo, there were literally like parties at our age that we could go to and see people performing and doing that stuff. So it, it was very different, you know what I mean? Like. There's mm. parties where people DJ, but then they be like, yo, stop. Such and such is in the house. We're going to let them rock. And you be like, word, like, that's what's up. Fair enough. Um, what was the sound systems like? Did y'all have mics and shit? Were you all recording yeah. vocals and stuff at home? Like, tell us no, a little bit. No, not at home. Okay. No, no, not at home. The, you, Everything you had was the low budget, like, all-in-one systems. Like I was saying, York's was probably the best one 
Like we had the toy microphone so that we could put lyrics on top, but it was not a good microphone. It wasn't a good copy, but you know, it was like you could work on your art and hear something, which was was good enough for me. So you could practice with the tech at home. And then when the right. time came, you would go to the studio. So let's talk a little like tangential idea. What do you think about the idea of one taking something? Do you feel like a lot of people are like actually one take it or do you feel like there's a lot of people who just practice a whole bunch or what's your experience with that kind of thing? Okay, so one takes, I don't believe in, first of all. So if you're recording a song, like it literally should be uh, executed as a production, you know what I mean? And where you have the best final product you can have. Like I've got people that come to the studio because I, I still have a studio and I record people. And when they come in here, they'll be like, oh, I messed up on this one line. I got to do the whole thing over. And I'm like, no, like if the beginning part is sounds as good and it came out the way you want it, let's punch in after that and just keep that flow going. Because if you one take it, something is not going to be as good as it could be in that one take. You know what I'm saying? Interesting. So this is like professional advice rappers from a guy. Yeah, I mean, it's a production. Has... It's one thing to be on stage and do something. And it's a whole nother thing to be in a studio. The beauty of the studio is you could polish everything that you would do wrong. On stage is where you have the problem, where, where which is where freestyling comes in. Because you forget a lyric, and, you know, you can't just stop rhyming. You know what I mean? Like... I mean, on I stage, <laughs> on st it, your right. stage show, people will forget, but a record is there forever. Mm. Right. Exactly. That's another point. So you got to be careful when it's a live record is, I guess, the big, big secondary lesson. Be extra on point that day. Um, mm hmm. No, that's so cool, though. I really like that you said that because I know a lot of people, like, I don't know. I just believe that if you are going to one-take it, and it's something I, I saw Liddy Bros throw up in the chats on my side, um, is that uh, if you're going to one-take it, practice it 45, 50 times first so when you show up to one-take it, 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 it fits. Mm -hmm. Cause, I, I'll, I'll tell you, though. Like, uh, So uh, there's one person I could tell you who was a master of it, and that was Memphis Bleak. Memphis okay. Bleak is one of the few people or only people that I've been in the studio with that would literally come in and in a half an hour, he'd be done with the whole entire song. He would literally come in and do all three verses. Boom. All right. Now I'm going to do the ad libs, whole thing straight down. Everything was it, perfect. You was it like I mean? off the dome or was he like practicing? Before no, no. He, that's what I'm saying. He practiced it. But when he came in, the execution was like flawless. This is exactly, it's exactly what he wanted. And he was able to do it in one takes. That's incredible. So you're saying, and this is just a fucking crazy historical tidbit that from an engineer who was there, that Memphis Bleak came all in a track in 30 minutes because he put the time in to make it happen. Yes, that is exactly. a wonderful fact to share with the world, dude. Dude, and I always say it, you know, Jay-Z, that's his man. And I was like, this is probably why you're his man. Everybody he's worked with, they'd be in the studio three, four, five hours on one song and might not even be finished with it. This dude comes in in a half an hour, he's done. Like, how many songs you want me to do? Oh, this is an hourly joint? I'll do two songs then. You know what I'm saying? You guys know what he just <laughs> said, though? I think we got to just unpack what you said there. That's fucking huge. So you're saying that uh, uh, 
we're going to say uh, the uh, probabilities and it's not all factual for the sake of whatever's. But Jay-Z's more interested in a guy like Memphis because Memphis kept album production costs at a fucking minimum like a professional. And Jay-Z's a professional. And it impressed mm-hmm. Jay-Z. And that was huge. Business That's some exactly. huge shit. Oh, thank yeah, you for sharing that, crazy. dude. I don't want to get into that until we get to that. I know, but <laughs> even just now for the beginning parts as a teaser... Oh, wow, mm-hmm. that's huge. That got me, like, my heart rate increased for the level of excitement. So let's go back then so we can build into it properly. So mm-hmm. you're back with Big Zoo. You guys are writing tracks. You're, you're composing now, keeping songs in mind. And I love that you said that about the production because I feel like, at least for me, maybe it's just I'm a lazy songwriter, but I like it when the producer has finished a track and you can clearly see that you can see it. I don't have to think about the song structure because the producer did it so eloquently. So I think it's huge that you do that and you were already doing that off the jump. I don't know if that's always been important to you or not, or if that's how everyone works. But to me, it's really cool that you do that. But let's go back to that era and what's happening in that world and how does it elevate and all that good stuff. So, the, the you know, it was cool then. We were big fans of music and together we just increase our knowledge base as far as music goes but uh i'm gonna say when i went when we we both ended up going to rutgers university and in college we were actually performing they would have uh talent shows open mics whatever and we would literally put together routines and get on stage and spit stuff so when we did one show and i believe it was with um where yo mtv raps came by so uh, Dr. Dre and Ed Lover had a thing and it was like a competition. So we were all in the competition. Zoo ended up winning, but um, Did you just it's say like we Big all performed Zoo and spit. won a competition that Dr. Dre was involved in? Not, not, not Dr. Dre, oh, like sorry. the chronic Dr. Dre. Okay, my but bad. There's another, Dr. Dre was overweight DJ. That's who the guy, who, is that the one who just unfortunately passed away and... I, I might be wrong. Is that because I'm pretty sure I saw a I don't know Dre who was over. I, I might be wrong. No, I don't know. It's not. It's okay. Not, okay. It's not. Sorry about that. I don't want to put anything bad on wax or anything. I'm just uh, anyway. <laughs> well, he, he he didn't he didn't pass away. He is sick, but it, and it oh. is that guy. It's okay. just he didn't pass away. All right. Well, that's good. But it's bad all at the same time. That's weird. Mixed emotions. Thank you for for clearing that up. I appreciate you, Flacco. Um. So yeah, back to you, uh, Nunzio. That's still huge, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know what I mean? So he did that. And I remember um, he did very well and killed it. I, I was doing my thing and I got booed. <laughs> and it's all right. I had some haters in college, you know what I mean? Which I found out later. But, you know, it's all gravy. Um, but, yeah, after that, a, a guy approached us named Kwame who was like, yo, I got a studio in my house. He lived off campus too. And he was like, yo, you if y'all got some ideas for beats, like I can help you arrange them and we could do some songs. And we were like, bet. So the very first song we ever did was at his house. Cause he had a little, like a real, it wasn't even like a high tech studio, but he had a microphone. He had a system he could record into, and he had something very similar to the ASR-10. So basically a keyboard with sampling capabilities. Cool. And yo, we came through there mad prepared like we was Memphis Blake, 
with the beats. Oh, we want to take this section from this time to this time. We want to take this section from this time to this time. We want to loop it here. We want it to go four times, then four times on the other thing. Yeah, and he was blown away by our professionalism as far as you've never made a beat before, but we made that beat in like a half an hour with his skill to put it together. You know what I'm saying? Just off our instructions. That's so crazy. it was like, that was the elevation. Now we had made a song and now in our heads, we're like, yo, we can make it. You know what I'm saying? You always feel that way <laughs> when you did, when you actually executed some shit you was trying to do. Of course, we came back, played it for everybody, everybody patting us on the back. And you know, it, it goes from there to even bigger things. But in college, that's what we were doing. So you're spending your time in college producing and making music, but I guess in this era, it's pretty cool to do this because you're going to be able to go to the parties, rock out. So it's heavily tied into the social culture, which weirdly enough is very much manifesting online these days. So I think there's a lot of cool parallels between the culture that you're describing to us and the way that you collaborated and the way you worked and the way, honestly, I see Facebook and COVID kind of teaming up to force these kinds of collaborations and this kind of a culture mm -hmm. almost recreating now. So I think it's cool to point out just these kind of comparisons, but so you're at the point now where you've realized I'm a producer or I'm, a, I'm doing this. This is where I'm going with my life. I, I, what, what it was is the acknowledgement that we were good at it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like Zoo didn't really want to do all of the engineering stuff. Me, I was interested in the engineering aspect. So basically, uh, I was in college for two years and then found out I had a learning disability and it was college was just a little bit too much for me so uh i ended up uh dropping well not even dropping i got kicked out you know what i mean That's <laughs> all right, man. by the dean it was on some bullshit though but i got kicked out of the, uh, college and then i went home and i started working at walgreens and just doing regular life but my one of my boys uh invested money in us because he really liked what we were doing and he became part of solid ground because he rhymes too what was the and name of that sonic so say, sonic ground sorry just what's the name of the group just so it's clear solid ground solid ground yep cool sorry go on please so um basically he bought a mpc60 which was the sampling um machine with the pads and uh, I learned how to use it, and now I was making beats at home, and we were we were creating mad songs. And then um, my other boy Doug Wilson was part of a group called Doggy Dog, who was a very popular hardcore group. They were originally called Mucky Pup, and then they they got new uh, members involved and changed the name to Doggy Dog. And we literally, because of Doug being so down with them, they would let us use the some of the equipment they had to record stuff. And, and they liked it so much that we ended up doing a couple of records with them for their album. So that totally explains the... You mean they robbed you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 the record... No, I tell everybody about that. All right. Yo, my boy Scotty you... Banks was like, wow, that's fucked up. He's like, but I love Doggy Dog, bro. <laughs> so, like, uh, no disrespect to Doggy Dog or anything. It does answer the question because I think I saw Roadrunner was involved there. And I yes, don't know. Roadrunner was so, the like, reason that. I'm not going to lie to you. I was like, Roadrunner to Biggie? Like, that's a. Uh... 
that's a weird like transition. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you you brought this up because I mean I know Roadrunner, dude, Slipknot and shit. Like that's me. That's my yeah. like youth when I'm young. Roadrunner's the shit. Honestly, Nickelback. I don't know. I don't know how or why, but Nickelback's Roadrunner, and I don't think a lot of people know that. But yeah, Nickelback, yeah. and uh, and no, then Stone the Sour fuck? also. So Roadrunner does the rap battle beef shit where they play Corey Taylor. Everybody got to fall off sometime. But yeah, they play Corey Taylor against fucking Chad Kroger. And if you watch the headline cycle, it is no fucking different than the way that the mainstream labels play rappers against each other. And I find that so fascinating that Roadrunner could be mm-hmm. tied all the way back to this. So Roadrunner is effectively around back in the early hip hop days and all this shit. Yes. I had exactly. no idea. That's nuts. And they liked and they literally liked way what back we were doing with them with the rhyming over the hardcore stuff. So. You know, it was like so. You I don't know are partly responsible for new metal. Uh, Roadrunner was doing hardcore back in the day. They did what I what I will say is this, right? So we did a song called um, "In the Dog Pound," right? And myself, Zoo, and my boy Doug rhyme on it, and so does the the lead singer. You know what I mean, Um, John Connor. What was his name? Ironically enough. So, so I just want to say, dude, I'm I'm 12 years old in 2000. There is almost nothing better sounding to me than new metal. And to hear mm-hmm. you basically say, because Roadrunner is like 80 percent of why new metal is a thing. Let's be 100 percent real. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. If you're saying that you were involved in the production elements that helped inspire their early work, go into more hip hop oriented sound, then I'm gonna have to say 100 percent. You literally helped inspire new metal in a very direct and tangential way. And I personally, as Linkin Park is my favorite band of all time, thank you for that because that's huge, dude. I didn't, I never thought in this conversation I would find out that I'm talking to an originator of my like honestly favorite genre of music. And that's so, I'm, I mean, I'm giving you more credit than maybe you want it. You're a humble dude. Yeah, you know. But allow me to be fucking clear. What you just said is I walked into the engineer. They heard us doing our thing. And then, you know, tw- 10 years later, it's the biggest genre in the world. That's just a side note. And Fred Durst yeah. is an A&R kind of scoping this shit out. Like, I mean, it doesn't, I like Limbisky. I don't care what anyone says. I fucking love their shit. Um, but like, end of the day, the fact is you can trace that to you. You're part of that story in a, it should be on the record kind of way. And regardless to how big or small you see that contribution, it doesn't change. That's more than I ever did. You know, like. Mm. It's more I than mean, anybody yeah. ever did. Like, come on. We acknowledge, we acknowledge that it was different. And, you know, it wasn't like the uh, an established type of genre even. Or that it was like, uh, it was definitely um, a merger between two things that we like. They weren't the I first like to do either. I like hardcore stuff. You know what I'm saying? I still listen to the, to that type of music. You know, in fact, I engineer some of it sometimes too. And on live shows, you know, but it's like we literally were just being creative and having a good time doing it. You know what I mean? So when it elevated, you know, that was great. Um, we were just on the last song in our first album. And then on the second album, they literally had us come to the studio for like three days and do a bunch of stuff with them. You know what I mean? So we did like a couple of skits with them and we did two songs with them. And, you know, one of the songs um, got them new, best new artists uh, for the Europe, uh, the MTV Europe Awards. 
That's like I'll never forget that. So, we, so that means you're the best new artist, really, none. Yeah, you're part. You you are in in wow. Like I'm just processing what you just said. Did you get to go to the award show and all that? No, nah, they didn't even fact. acknowledge us. <laughs> Yo, I heard but the same story 20 years ago. Exactly the same. Yeah. So this is the thing, right? So we were in the studio for the last day, and I guess it's the head A and R guy that came in, or maybe one of the the higher ups in the label. Um, had come and he pulled me, uh, Doug and Zoo to the side, like, yo, so we need you to sign these contracts, you know what I mean? And then we'll pay you some money for what you did on, on this record that we're about to pull out. So the contract just on reading it, it was telling me that we were going to get paid a hundred dollars and that we wouldn't get any residuals off the album. You know what I'm saying? We would get credit in our name, but Basically, we were getting paid $100 flat fee for everything, no matter what the record did or what happened. And I told the dude, I was like, dude, like $100 don't mean shit to me. Like, I'm not signing that. But I was like, these are my boys, and I'm not going to sue them over no shit. But I was like, that's like a mad insult. Like, I'm not going to sign that. So I turned down that $100. Like, like I'm not fucking with you. You know what I mean? So I'm pretty sure when they won the award, they were playing the part of the verse that was I was on, you know what I'm saying, when they when they went to get the reward. You should award. sue that label today, bro. You should sue I, the I'm fuck not out suing nobody, because I'm like, yo, I, I just agreed to do it because these are my peoples, and I don't have a problem with that. But trying to put a price on it, and then that price being $100, I was pissed. I was just like, yo, fuck you. Yeah. But I know that's the label, not them. They would have loved if we could have got a thousand dollars. You know what I mean? And I probably would have been with that. But I think it's cool that you shared that because that's fucking professional of you. And the way that you handle that, like, look, I'm on my own like self growth journeys and shit. And I would like to believe that I could handle a situation with that level of elegance and grace. First of all, I believe in pointing the weapon in the right direction. So be mad at the right people. You were mad at the labels, not the band. And I know a lot of people today don't actually pay attention to that kind of thing. And they get mad at the band when it's like, come on, dog. You just have to look a little deeper to see what the fuck is up. So you were mad at the right people. But also, you knew the consequences of going in that route and who it would hurt. Because it probably wouldn't hurt the label. It would hurt your boys. And they were your boys. And at the end of the day, they still hooked you up. And you saw what they were doing for you. Because you said that in your way you told the story, I believe, <clears throat> that you saw this as an opportunity. To, and maybe you got robbed proper, but you also gained something that you wouldn't have got without the robbery. And the fact that you're able to isolate the lessons in that. I'm sure you learned about label contracts, and we all learned about that. That's fucking cool that you broke it down the way you did. Um, you learned about the value of taking advantage of uh, relationships and opportunities as they appear, but more importantly, keeping those relationships. I bet those doggy dog guys are cool with you or in that yeah, era. Yeah, we, cool. we'll always be cool, dude. I haven't seen them in a while, but I know uh, one, one of them that played the bass, uh, one of my boys was telling me, like, he said hello, and Chris, and I was like, what? Like, you know him? Like, that's crazy. So, you know, small world. But it's like, yeah, I would never, I would never hold anything against those guys. And as a fact, as a matter of fact, the the give back was they 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 had us open up for them uh, at a lot of shows, dude. Like, so, and I'll never forget this one. We did one in Newark, and yo, no lie, it had to be like two thousand people in this place, man. This place was huge, 
and it was packed out. And I remember cutting through the crowd was just crazy. You know what I'm saying? Trying to get through the crowd to get to the stage. And they called us on stage before they got on. The crowd was there to see them. And we did our first song. And when we finished, the whole crowd was silent. Man. And they were just looking at us. And then all of a sudden, somebody started clapping. And then the whole crowd went nuts. And we did one more song. But when I got off the stage, everybody was telling, yo, that was hot, solid ground. Like, it was fucking incredible. So let me understand this. Let's just go back into this fucking, um, this, like, relationship building thing you just did. You didn't mm -hmm. take the route of suing. You didn't maybe no. do what your no. friend suggested, which is fair enough. It's a, it's a proper reaction. But instead, what happened was you maintained a positive relationship with your peers who you were cool with. And they set you up in a way that was just blessed. Because, y'all, like, you just described a scene out of a fucking movie. Okay? <laughs> Yo, it really, that's what it felt like. And, you know, and then on top of that, we did uh, other performances with them where they did merge with hip-hop. And so we, we performed, like, two, three times. Definitely two. I think it was three, though. With, with Beat Nuts. You know what I mean? Opening mm. up for them. So, Ooh, sorry, what was the name of the song? The horror stories back in the day. So I didn't hear any of this good stuff back in the day. Yeah, so uh, for your quest, the, the song on the first album was Dog Pound. And mm -hmm. on the second album, No Fronts was the single that they released mm -hmm. that they won awards for and all of this stuff. Um, and, I don't and, remember the, the name of the other songs that we did with them because they were more like skits. You were in that? You were in that song? On the song, Doggy Dog, yes, with, with them. Yeah. Pretty sure the singer now manages Kid Cudi or something like that. Mm, that's fucking. Oh, really, Chris? I mean, wait, uh, uh, wait, what? Hold on, what? He, he's <laughs> some big rapper. He, he, he's definitely, yeah, he definitely. I wouldn't be surprised. Dude, John Connor is fucking amazing. Oh, oh wait, so, John yo. Connor is the is the is the. Yeah, the just like from um, Terminator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so his real name. This guy is the manager of Kid Cootie today. Is that what we're saying? I got a little confused I'm in that. Positive if it's Kid he's Cudi, not positive. But he's managing okay. somebody in hip hop. That's, that's fucking fresh. But then if you consider that, back to the whole suing point, because I think it's really important. That's tactics, right? Because a lot of people don't know how to, like, let's call it game power. That's what it is, is building the relationships to elevate your stature. And so people do take that hostile route. That was me until like, I don't know, two years ago and I got my fucking head out of my ass. And I started realizing that offering things to people gains you a lot, a lot of shit in life. Um, it's just the mm -hmm. facts of it. You caught that young apparently. So you gave your services away to these people. And in return, you got to perform for fucking beat nuts. Like, I, I know there might be other questions, but we've got to fucking stop and talk about this for a second. Tell us about mm -hmm. this. That's huge, man. Tell okay, us the experience. So this is this is where you you receive your um, side graces. I don't even know what to call it. But one of the benefits of that was that Juju from the beat nuts really liked our group. So uh, he was on relativity and this is what, this is all like full circle stuff, right? So he gave us the opportunity to go into a studio. Relativity gave us money to do five song, a five song demo in a studio that they provided for us. And we literally went in there and in three days we did five songs and made a demo. And I, I'll say this, like, out of the five songs, one of them was absolutely terrible and horrible, but some craziness had happened the night before. 
Um, are you willing to? I don't know if you know who they are, but no. the goats. Let's do it. Explore right. this um, man. Let's just keep I it know running. The goats. Yeah, the goats is like very popular. They were um from Philadelphia, and one of my boys who plays drums was in the band, and we had a very fucked up, debaucherous, crazy ass night um with them. They're cool peoples, but one of their bodyguards fucking overdosed on something i don't even know what it was and we spent the night looking for this motherfucker in the streets you know what i mean so it was really crazy because he's uh he's a big man and he tried to put his hands around my neck like he was gonna choke me and shit like because he was tripping but you know that was a that's a long story i won't get into it other than that but definitely juju um put us in the studio to do these songs and I know four of those songs were great, but one of them was absolutely terrible. And um, we missed out on being signed to Relativity because they signed Ed Lover and Dr. Dre because they were doing that movie, Who's the Man? So it had nothing to do with the quality of anything. They chose to do that. Song. They were like, they're more popular. You know what I'm saying? Mm. They were like, they got your MTV raps and they're about to do a movie. Like, we're going to roll with them. So... It was understood, but it was like, damn, that was it. That was like the chance. But I, you know, I just appreciate getting a chance. So I think it's dope, but it's interesting how at the end of the day, it's like the op, they, they took it from a perspective and again, a label of, hmm, what's the better business move? What's the better way mm -hmm. to like, um, you know, make money on the situation rather than quality and sound. And I think it's important to say that because I think a lot of people have this jaded illusion that somehow like the music industry or was more authentic or pure back in the day, you know, like, and I, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't really think it was, I think it was just always toxic and it was just always terrible. It's just that there was probably mm -hmm. just less music out. So you didn't hear as much bullshit. Right. So, right. um, I don't know if you feel like you want to expand on any of that a little bit. You're exp like, I mean, what consequential to this part of the story, like what you can share about what you've seen or heard of this time of your life. Cause you, well, I mean, you were smart enough to read the contract. Okay. So right. what and, got and you to that point? Labels, man, you know, it's tough back then. It's, it's very different. The one thing I could tell you that always happened to us as solid ground was everybody always liked the music. That was never the problem. They always were like, yo, I, I like this shit. Like I would listen to it. The problem was, is they were like, I don't know what to do with this because it's so different from, from everything else. And it's not similar to anything I could relate it to, to promote it. You know what I mean? So what, it so became- what kind of, uh, So what kind of sonic choices were you making on that project? Like what is- uh, well, uh, the comparison we always used to get was uh, Tribe Called Quest and Brand Nubian. So and they were like, you're like a mixture of that with a sprinkle of De La Soul. You know what I mean? So they literally, like in, in, on campus, they used to call us the tribe, you know, or instead of solid ground. They'd be like, oh, y'all the tribe, yo, like, because y'all like native tongues, like the whole shit mixed with fucking Brand Nubian. Yo, solid ground is dope. Yeah, dope. but I was that's I, you know that's why I like the name because I was like that's basically what we are. We, we, Yo, our feet are, are on um, the ground. You know what I'm saying? We're not floating nowhere. We're very realistic with it. Yo, on um Facebook, Shant uh 
somebody asked, um, uh, that was around 95. Didn't y'all open for the Beat Nuts in Philly? Yes. Oh, dude. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pause everything else. Tell us about opening for the Beat Nuts. I feel like we got to go back to like the actual experience of the shows. Dude, you know, it's the Beat Nuts. They're, they're like the best production team at that time. You know, one of my favorites, at least. You know what I'm saying? So, like, just being able to be in the same room with them and have them like like us is like phenomenal to me. You know what I'm saying? But it's like I said, dude, like there's such a crazy cycle and repetitiveness with all of this because, and I'm gonna just throw this out here now because it fits, is uh, PH. I recorded a bunch of songs with him at the I, dojo. I'm not gonna lie, I'm not sure who PH is, I'm sorry. All right, his name is Pumpkinhead, very popular dude. Like. So he got a street named after him in um, Park Slope, Brooklyn. So, okay. yeah, he, he he's definitely one of the pioneers on the underground level for music, and especially battle rap. So um, he came to the studio. He's one of my idols, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, and he brought um, Psycho Less to the studio because Psycho Less made all the beats for him. And I proceeded to have a conversation with him, like, oh, Nunzio from Solid Ground. And he's like, oh, shit. Like, that's what's up. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like full circle, dude. Honestly, I think it's fucking cool that you're sharing this, man. I feel like, because, like, you're so humble, dude. Like, it's like if you talk to you, you're like the most regular fucking Yo, dude I've ever met. let me tell you, this is the funny thing, dude, is, is we're all people. Everybody is a person. You know what I mean? No matter what your financial status or whatever it is. And I don't know. And honestly, I do know where I learned this from. This is how, where I learned this from. Because I'm a little kid, probably about five, six years old. My favorite basketball player is Dr. J. I go to a family outing and Dr. J shows up. And I have a picture with him. We both got the crazy afros and I'm like at his knee. And he's just like, hey, was, you know, in the picture, like hugging me and shit. And yo, I met him and it was, he was a regular person. He was mad cool. He sat, he talked with me and it was great. But at that time, it's like, yo, I just met like one of my heroes. But then you realize like, yo, he's just like, he's part of the family. He's a regular person. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So he's related to somebody in the family. And that's why he was at this outing. And he was mad cool. It was just a regular person. You know what I mean? And everybody else in the family, I was the only one really flipping out. You know what I'm saying? Everybody else in the family is treating him like a regular dude. And I'm like, yo, that's Dr. J. Like, you understand? So at that point in time, you realize, like, and I had to be told, like, yo, he's a regular person. Like, yeah, he does all of that. And that's great. But, you know. Treat him like he's your uncle. Like, you know, and then, of course, you're like, oh, Dr. J's my uncle. That's <laughs> Man, that's cool. Uh, so basically, then we understand that all this is going on in our story of Nunzio. We're at 95. And I'm pretty sure that 96 is a fucking cool year for you. So why don't we uh, talk about the evolution into the next parts and how all of that comes to okay. be. So my man, Doug, um, who was the connect with, um, with, uh, doggy dog, he, uh, basically got a call from one of his friends and he got, ended up getting a job at the hit factory. 
So this is probably in, um, so I'm going to say, let's just, 93. What's the hit factory? Okay, I was about to say, in 93. And the hit factory is the biggest studio in the world. It's the most popular. Like, Michael Jackson uses it. Every, every major artist uses that place. You know what I mean? Including the newer ones, etc. It's like the studio. So he ends up working there and getting promoted because he was working with Jodeci and Puff was the one um, running that whole thing. And I found it funny because he's like, I'm literally getting mad jobs because people are afraid of them. Like the, he told me a story of how they were in the studio and they pulled guns out and they're looking at the gun like, yo, I got this one, mine's nickel plated. Like, look at this. And they're holding the guns, just admiring the guns and shit, but it freaked out the engineers. And since most of the engineers at that time were white, my boy Doug, even though he looks white, he's a person of color and he's Trinidadian. And so they were like, like, do you mind doing these? So he's like, nah, like, I like this music. These dudes are cool. Like he wasn't afraid, you know what I'm saying? So because of that, he ended up doing a lot of those sessions. And eventually he became an engineer over at the Hit Factory. So he calls me one day like, yo, I'm about to get out of this Hit Factory shit. I'm about to do a, a new job at this place called Daddy's House, which is Puff. Puff Daddy was his name at the time. P. Diddy, whatever you want to call him, Sean Combs. It's his studio. So he's like, yo, you should interview for the job. And I was like, word? Like, I ain't never engineer. Now. He's like, yeah, but you've been in here with me. You know enough. He was like, they'll teach you everything else you need to know, just like I learned. And I was like, bet. So I went to the interview. When I go to the interview, the woman sits down with me. We go through a bunch of stuff. And the final question she asked me is, do you believe in God? And I was like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. And she was like, you got the job. So I started working there about two weeks after that. And mind you, they were building the studio still. So I was part of the build. And at the same time, they were teaching me a little something here and there as to how to engineer. But what I found funny is there were 16 people working there at that time. And then they cut it down to like six people that would stay there as assistant engineers. All right, so we got- All the people, so all the people that had the, the degree from going to school and all of this, none of them got picked except for one person because his attitude was different from everybody else. Like the rest of us were just eager to learn. So whatever you told us, it's we were bunch. just absorbing it. There was no rebuttal. It's like, okay. And then we might have a few questions for you to explain things further, but the other people would act like they knew what was up. Now nah, I learned this in school. You shouldn't do that. You could do it this way, blah, blah, blah. So eventually they got rid of all those people and were like, yo, you're compliant. You're eager to learn. So boom, you're in this position now. And I, I was one of the people that they liked the most because all of that starstruck stuff wasn't happening with me. You were just a regular person. It's nice to meet you. And we worked. Can I just Diddy up the record is really Nunzio up the record. Hold on, can we just can we just unpack this for a second here? Because yo, that's a lot. Yes. I need to make sure that I'm following you because this is like we're talking about real fucking history. We're talking about the the bad boy studio thing, the the, the bad yes. boy records. Just so everyone's right. aware, 
we're talking that bad boy records the one that's still around mm -hmm. today um in their original shit their studio you were part of putting yeah. that were you saying literally putting it together literally putting it together. so we're saying one we're of talking the rooms was, was almost done we we literally like lifted and brought the pieces of the board in and all of this stuff dude wiring you name it building walls it was crazy so you literally helped build the bad boy studios or daddy's mm -hmm. house that's a that's a ridiculous name daddy's house um yeah and then uh, 16 people it's almost like a reality television show that's kind of crazy if you think about it you're you're literally mm -hmm. part of a puff daddy doing reality tv before reality tv was reality yeah, TV. pretty much and that's how he structured his hiring process that's actually mm -hmm. fucking crazy did did everybody catch that he just told us a puff daddy strategy of the 90s dog that's fucking insane holy shit that's more the manager than puff though you know bad boy is an ensemble I'll, I'll we'll categorize it if i accidentally say puff daddy moving forward i don't mean puff per se i mean the idea of puff being bad boy as synonymous entities to my montreal brain so just as a for the record there but no that's fucking nuts that is fucking nuts right so reality tv interview style shits and that's how they structured it and you win because attitude is key and you got that lesson about humility early on which was to your advantage mm -hmm. so you applied it but most importantly and i don't even know if it was so much that part you said that they said because they're the boss man right and when the boss mm -hmm. man goes i want it done this way the pretentious man goes dog i know better the wise man goes how can I help you achieve your goals? If that's the position that you're in, you did that. And you were one of six people to mm -hmm. be an engineer at fucking the beginning of bad yeah. boys fucking. Well, I, you know, I started as an assistant, but after about a year and a half of being there, I got promoted to uh engineer. All right. Like I had learned so much. I got to like, you can press the buttons now. I got to ask one more tangent before we go back into your story. Can you just explain the roles in a studio? Because I was looking at your credits and it's going second engineer this and fucking first right. engineer. I don't know okay, what the fuck so, any of that means. The, okay, so assistant engineer means you were there. It means that the engineer was giving you instructions and you would do whatever he needed. So they call it uh, uh, is a patch bay um, that leads you basically to all the outboard gear that you would use for mixing. So if you want to put reverb on it, you're the one that's patching the, that in so that he could move it on the board and add whatever reverb or what have you onto it. You know what I mean? For instance, but there, there's a lot to it. There's two inch reels. There's, um, so you had a two inch machine, which has 24 tracks. You, uh, when you do a session, you have to align the tracks and basically to put them at zero. And then you have to make what's called a record pad. So when you go back to the song, you actually put it at the same settings in the machine that it had previously, because stuff gets out of whack sometimes if you don't do it all the time. So basically, um, as far as preparation goes, I was definitely on point with all of that. As far as tweaking the machines and getting everything even, setting up the room, I mean, I was that dude, you know what I mean, in the studio. So engineers like me, but on top of it, I was in a short time, I was able to do a lot of the stuff that the engineer didn't want to do. And therefore I eventually got promoted. Oh my gosh. Do you know what you just did again? You dropped another knowledge nugget, Nunzio. 
I love it. You're making this very educational for the folks because I put educational as a tag and I'm like, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what I'm hearing is you saw the opportunity to show people that your value was prevalent uh, or was better than others because you were willing to do things others were not willing to do and showing that via your attitude you were a team player rather than a person who cared about roles and responsibilities per se. And that elevated you in fucking bad boys inception era do y'all hear that mm. that's important always shit. a team player dude i love it always dude. A team player. all right so you've explained what the engineering and the whole squad and so what are, what are the titles officially mean like when you say second engineer okay so when you get second engineer that means you weren't the main engineer or the person that mixed the record but you probably recorded stuff on on uh that uh was was placed on the record so you might like uh, for instance there have definitely been sessions where it's two three in the morning the engineer is like yo we've been in here since eight nobody's gonna record anything i'm gonna just leave the beat on cycle you know what i'm saying and he'll leave but then at four in the morning five in the morning whoever the artist is will be like yo i'm ready to record and then i end up recording them you know, as well as an engineer might not show up or he can't make it, in which case it gets placed in my hands and I end up doing the recordings. Fair enough, man. So mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you could, did you get to work? I mean, obviously you were you, you dealt with some very, very huge names, like the kind of names that everybody geeks out over. And is this because you were just available? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Like you got these opportunities mostly because- I mean, it is, it's two things, right? Not only availability, but the fact that I was basically living in the studio. A bunch of us were, you know what I mean? But you basically, you're starting your day at 9, 10 in the morning and you're going until 3, 4 the next morning in a lot of cases, you know what I mean? And so we would be like, yo, instead of going home, and especially since I lived in Jersey, I couldn't get back home until- the first bus is at like 4.35 in the morning. So we would literally go and hang out at the late night spots, go watch some live music, whatever it was, and then go crash at the studio for like two hours, wake up in the morning, just go back at it. But I, I had that, that work etiquette because even when they wouldn't do sessions, and this is probably the, the more important part that helped me um, excel at this was if they weren't using the studio, I'd be like, yo, this room is open. I'd be calling people up. Yo, the studio's open. Little Kim ain't coming in tonight. Like, come through. We're going to make some joints. Did you, like, And I would use the studio. Did you and know how he, he casually fucking name drops Lil' Kim like it's not? Like, fuck my life, dog. This is a huge moment for me. I'm just saying. This is a huge moment. So you did something again. And you see, I, I like to study the habits of, of successful people and I like to look for habits and how they do their day to day because that's how I can adopt better habits for myself. And I'm also working in a software company where web analytics and all that shit is a huge prevalent force in my life. And what you said in the middle of that was actually a huge differential from a lot of people's grinds. You popped into the live music venues and kept your ear to the streets in order to do what we call market research up in corporate boring land but you did your market research along the way. So it wasn't so much just that you were there and available, et cetera, and that you had the right work ethic. You had that extra element of, of caring about the user experience in a way to put it, mm -hmm. of caring about the perception of what the person who wants to consume the product is because you're actually around a fucking consumer. 
And then right. you went. Well, home. I'm gonna tell you too. This is even bigger part, and I'm kind of kind of segue a little bit backwards, Go so it's it. easier for you to understand. But um, my and Zoo can uh, attest to this right here. We're in high school, and we're too young to get into clubs. But well, we got friends that could drive. And eventually I would be the driver. He would drive there too. But we would go to the city and go to these venues and go see people perform without knowing who they were. In particular was a place called Quando's. And it was um, Rosie Perez that put this together. So literally, and I'm going to tell you one of the best nights too. I, we went there one night and they're like, okay, we got this dude Trench coming up. And we thought his name was Trench because he had a jerry curl. He had this long trench coat on. It turned out to be Tretch from Naughty by Nature. You know what I mean? Which we realized later on. But we also saw leaders of the new school before they were leaders of the new school, before they even came out. We saw Buster Rhymes a few times up there. We saw Poor Righteous Teachers. The best, of course, was KRS-One. We used to religiously see him there. And it was just like all of these artists. So you, you know, Louis it was Finesse. like um, Lyricist Lounge to a degree, but it was before Lyricist Lounge. I so you, you had major, major stars that would be there, and then you would meet people that you were like, I don't even know who this is. Yes, Lord Finesse is one of them. Andre the Giant is another one. Oh. And it's just a bunch of talented people. I actually have so a you would go there and be DLTC. like, yo, my mind is blown. We saw MC Light in there one time, and it's like, yo, like it's the greatest place in the world. You understand? So yeah, that when I'm going like, out into cool. the streets and doing this thing, I'm going to venues and doing the same thing. There's people there that I don't know, but I'm like, yo, I'm going to this show because it's, it's, it's probably going to be a good show or somebody recommended it. And sure enough, every time you go, there's always a jewel yo, in there. Just for anybody coming in, we're talking 96, right? So he's talking like, this is what we call golden era, if I'm not mistaken. You're in the goldenest of the era with the goldenest mm -hmm. of the people. You're, right. you're, you're a golden era people. You're just one of them to me. Like I see no difference between you or any of these other dudes in my opinion. Plus you plus Ooh. you get bonus points for helping build new metal. Props, big points in my <laughs> heart for that. So, and that, that's dope dog, I love it. I really am so, so happy that you shared this with us. And I hate that I have to do this, but my bladder's killing me. We gotta yes. take a, 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 a like a five minute pee break if that's okay with everybody. If that's okay that's with y'all, don't be clicking off or leaving or anything. I just gotta pee real bad. That's okay. Yes, that's fine. Very cool. And then can we'll I, come back. Um, can I play a song while you're doing that? Yes, please do. So I'm gonna promote my man Big Zoo's new album, which is coming out on December 18th. Right? It's called Ooh. No Be So Fierce. And what I'm gonna play you is a single that is actually out on um, on uh, YouTube with a video. The, the album will be out on the 18th, like I said. And this one is called The Butters. It's a freaking phenomenal, phenomenal song. Also with my man Prolific One, AKA Propane, but yeah. Y'all need to peep this. The audience in the comments under are the saying butters. yes. It's where they used to hide their box cutters. Bring it back. Under the butters. Yeah. It's where they used to hide.
as they box cutters and other tools they use to injure one another more murals and funerals more crying mothers they never truly learn what they meant to one another the subtle hateful messages sent to one another failure to repay funds they lent to one another leads the brother killing brother i seen humans born from the same mother plot a scheme to murder each other it's not black on black crime it's just crime it just happened to be blacks involved with that crime at that time don't let them change up the narrative it's the new narrative progressive powerful the zoo narrative take it from christopher i shift to uplift the listener share gift like rare piff pole positioner delegate and administrate the commissioner fight sinister to free all political prisoners the butters Straight from the gutters, rusty razor, open your cheekbone. Lizzie bag, scammer thought, credit card cheat code. The butters. We not paying at retail. Yap a whole rack, hit the hood for the resale. Poor, so we steal, plus we live for the thrill. Hevel Square, Bloomingdale's, Broadway to Ville. Boosting and racking, tear through Manhattan. Hood stars with gem stars in premium fashion. Pony hair swayed out of way on some necks. Wow. Big homie got security under pressure. Shut. Run up in the outlets, layer up, hit the exit. Purple label, cashmere, exotic and precious out of hand. 9630 deep, Sherpa sheet, color of noodles. Over low snow beach, I'm not playing. These mac and cheese, Tim, stay scuffless. In this prison, the material lustrous, the butter. The mothers waking up late night, hear that lock click. Make sure you made it home all right. The brothers working to hold down each other. Are we gang or we really at war with one another? Undercovers late night on the stakeout, harassing shakedown outside of the takeout. The others. You not a part of this life though. Watch it from the sidelines. Watches our lives go. The brothers. I need that by any means. Shoot a nigga, cut a nigga. Yo, I blood the scene. The judges, they throwing numbers like yard plates. 45 got us under pressure with God's grace. People of color, when we build with one another. Our momentum is sky high. Freedom or die, try. Put us on my mind. Tap into our tribe. Elevate. Get your levels on our vibe. The buttons. My gosh, that song has been stuck in my head. I'm not gonna lie, since the first time I heard it. Like, I, I watched that music video, whatever, but the way it's produced, the way that Big Zoo and shit, uh, fuck, I can't remember the other dude's Pro, name. Pro, Propane, I'm so AKA sorry. Prolific Propane. A brain fart. I'm on, I'm on the live sometimes that happens. Um, but uh, that track, the way everything is just put together is actually just like fucking perfect. Like, you sit there from the first note. The way it rides that groove, the way, yo, Big Zoo, you understand the pocket, my friend, and that is a fucking ridiculously well-placed thing. Your voice is absolutely smooth, like butter. And, uh, on yeah, and we produced that one, too. And it's like, and I'm not just trying to gas anybody up here. I, like, do fucking album reviews and shit. I take my, like, reviewer mind super seriously, so I can't be talking no nonsense. If I say it's dope and people don't think it's dope, it's bad for me, right? So I have to like give you full credit. Like of a lot of the tracks I've heard this year, the butters is an earworm while giving me political messaging and stuff. But that's more on the big zoo end, I would say. What are your contributions to that? Were you involved in that song? In the in the making of it? Yeah. Production wise. Tell us more yes. about that. Cause yo, I personally so, didn't me, know that. Myself and Zoo. 
have a production team and we, you know, solid ground, we call it SG for short. You know what I mean? So we've done like um, a couple of albums and all of this and we try to stay in the whole SG thing. So for our production team, we call it Strategy God to stay within the whole SG thing. So we call it Strategy God. It was his idea. He brought it here and we cut it up and made the beat. But that's another, that's another like humble, like all over my album, you're going to see produced by Strategy God and people are not going to know what that is. But for the insiders, Strategy God is the production team of me and Nunzio. And it's just years of um, producing and making music together. And like you said, being in the pocket and that record is a product of it. So Ra is always, or Nun is always the last one to like toot his own horn, but Every song on there you see that says produced by Strategy God is produced by me and none. That's amazing. Kudos to both of you. Because honestly, I'm not saying it lightly when I use the earworm term. Because that shit's very specific. That means you hear it one time and like a worm, it infests into your fucking brain and it does not leave. And that's why I use the word infest in a positive way. And it's just been amazing to listen to that track over and over again. So that is, and I felt like everybody watching, because keep in mind, we want to make sure that the people out there in the world see this show. Somebody may come across who doesn't know you. They need to know you. That's what we're doing here. So I know that you're a humble dude, but it's totally okay to say, yeah, I made that dope thing. That's just what it is. It's totally okay to also do that. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. That's yo, for sure. Um, I will toot my horn on this, though. I did mix the entire album. Amazing. Because the mixing, not gonna, no offense, Bezu, or anybody, the mixing is what really sold me on that because it blended everything perfectly. And when you hear good rappers a lot, it really comes down to engineering what you want to keep listening to. As an album reviewer, the production gives my grade more than the rappers because rappers be mad fucking consistent. If you like a rapper, you're liking the rapper on every song, and it's everything else that determines if you like it or not. That's the facts of it when you really like study this shit. So you made it pop, and that's real cool. And, and I know Big Zoo's involved too, so all respects to the production team. But I'm saying you made it pop too. That's all I'm saying. That's really fucking yeah. cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. So why don't we go all the way back in time then to 96 as we're cruising around. And why don't you tell us a bit more about, like, let's let's go with some of the more fun stories. Like, you worked on some pretty fucking cool albums. Tell us about yeah, them. Yeah, definitely. So um, Big was definitely a pleasure to work with. It's definitely a, a different type of environment. Um, you know, Junior Mafia was there all the time. Same with Little Kim. But I definitely learned a few gems from him that I will, I'll never forget. And I still to this day uh, use with some certain artists or people that I feel like, yo, you, you're good, but you need to go like a step further. So I'll tell you this, um, like Little Kim, you know, um, wanna rumble with the B, huh? Bzz, all of that, that's yes. because of Big. Yeah, like, you know, she does a lot of, um, accentuate uh over exaggerating words or doing sound effects that's all because of big because the day she did that he was like that's what i'm talking about like you see how you just went but that shit is hot you know what i'm saying so you were He's there like, when that happened yeah hell yeah a lot of stuff dude like tell us know. about the stuffs but but she you know she was one of those uh she has the talent she definitely got the wordplay 
but you're not. And, and this is what I was saying before earlier about the whole one take. Like when you're in the studio, you're doing a production. Like, so you're trying to get the best performance out and encompass that whole shit into the song. You know what I'm saying? So that's what he was trying to tell her. Like, be free with it. Have fun with it. Because if you're having fun with it, then I'm going to have fun with it. You know, if it's something that's wrong, we'll take it out. But in the meantime, don't be afraid to go there. You know what I'm saying? Ooh. Be over-exaggerate sometimes. Be extra. It's okay because this is your stage, basically. In the studio, that's your stage for your performance. You, you know, you're only going to get it once, though. And there's no recreating it except when you go on stage. And even then, it's not going to be the same as what you did in the studio. But at least make this the perfect performance. Like, I hit all the marks. I'm in the cut. Everything is clearly heard, etc. You know, you got to accentuate the positive. But yo, a big thing you said there that's huge is um, don't be afraid to go and get too much. Now, I made some music videos on my DIY cell phone shit, and I learned what that meant real time. Because <clears throat> if you don't get enough footage, you're reusing a lot of stuff. And it's not going to mm -hmm. be like the good thing. And then people to B-rolls and other things. So effectively, it's like really important to like actually capture as much as you can to create the best final product giving you the engineer a lot more to work with um what about like ad libs and all that shit how important is that like in you know like was this like a huge conversation point yeah i mean honest all right so first off i'm gonna give you the master of ad libs i had the pleasure of working with public enemy oh. right and it was for a song the he got game basically so not only did I meet uh, Hank Shockley and and uh, fuck you worked that on that squad. shit. That's fucking amazing. That whole squad, yep. And um, I learned a lot from them too. But I also got to see meet Chuck D, who's one of my fucking heroes too. He's a phenomenal MC. But then um, he came in and did his part. So this is how they worked. Uh, they don't really get along too well, so. And I, I assume that's from years of touring and the fact that Chuck D is a very mellow, cool dude. And, you know, Flavor Flav is a little, yeah. little crazier, a little a lot more outlandish. You know what I'm saying? So, like, he would leave the studio and then Flavor Flav would come in. But where most people would be like, okay, so play the song and I'm going to go through the ad-libs. He was like, nah, I don't need to hear all that. As a matter of fact, I don't want to hear the song. He goes straight into the booth and he's like, yo, play me the next four bars. And they'll play the first four bars. He'd be like, play it one more time. He'd be like, cool, record me. And then he gives you the ad lib for those four bars, whether it's two of them, three of them, or just one. Then he's like, okay, I like that. Let's go to the next four bars. So he literally is like, I let me listen to it. I don't want to hear it because I'm trying to accentuate what he's saying. So I just want to hear what he's saying and with the beat, and then I'm going to just figure out what's a good ad lib for that, just that piece of that section. And I thought, like, that's fucking genius. You know what I mean? If you didn't write the rhyme and you're doing the ad lib, that is absolute genius because you're giving full attention to a few lines so that you can actually give the best deliverance or performance to fill in that gap with a with an ad lib. You know what I mean? So... I always found that phenomenal. Now, if you wrote it, you should be able to accentuate it yourself, but it might behoove you to be like, yo, 
I doubled words, but now I'm going to do the actual ad lib. I'm going to just listen to this piece till I'm like, oh, I know what's perfect to put in here. You know what I'm saying? That's like, the way the ball bounces, G. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's genius work. Yo, honestly, I have struggled with ad libs the entire time I've done songs. It is the hardest part in the world for me. And I think you just gave me a tip that I'm going to go fucking yeah, I'm try. I'm telling you, it's going to work. You got, it, and it makes your job easier. There's no pressure now. And there's no really messing it up. You know how you go through and you be like, oh, I like all of these ad-libs except for this one. And like, I fucked it up. And then people will be like with the whole one take shit and then they erase them. It's like, nah, just do it a piece at a time if you're not sure. And boom, it'll be perfect every time. Unless you wrote it. If you wrote it, then I would say, yo, be a little bit free with it and do it. But sometimes, just like yourself, you might be better off just doing it a section at a time. And being like, yeah, this is the perfect ad lib. And sometimes you don't need the ad lib. So take that into account right, too. Let's expand on that. You're a pro you're a professional. We're talking OG with all the credentials you could possibly fucking have at this. When should somebody veer towards ad libs? And when should somebody veer away from them in your opinion, based on sounds and styles and shit? So I'm gonna tell you first of all, you should always do ad libs. Just because you can always take them away if you don't like them. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's, there'll be a case, and I will say this too. There are cases where you shouldn't double a word. You shouldn't add ad-libs, you know what I'm saying, at all, because your performance, your vocal performance on the lead is enough. You know mm. what I'm saying? So that's another thing to take into consideration. You don't always have to double words and do this. If your performance of the lead vocal is absolutely stunning and spectacular, and you listen to it, and you're like, damn, that's dope, Maybe you don't need to add no other stuff onto it. You know what I mean? But you have to, it's just observing things. And honestly, when you're making an album, you know, that's, these are things that you should take into consideration. You know what I mean? Like I've learned that you don't want everything on the album to sound the same, but, um, and one of those ways is to do something like that. I got this one song where I'm telling the story but instead of me adding ad-libs and, and, and all of this other stuff, I added sound effects and left my straight vocal as the main, main vocal. Did y'all just hear what he said there? That was huge. I mean, he said a lot of huge things, but he said an extra huge thing, in my opinion. Sound effects are ad-libs, and that's how they need to mm -hmm. be treated. Um, it's something I noticed Eminem did, and maybe whatever, whatever about his reputation, but he's really good at using sound effects as ad-libs. And it's something that I find makes his song stand out as bigger and more loud in a way that Puff Daddy's stuff sounds bigger and more loud than other people's things. And I, I, I really, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I hear it in a lot of, especially the more pop-oriented music. It's almost like you can't have pop music now without good ad-libs. Underground's a whole different universe. Underground is just niche markets for days. So it's pick a niche market and there's enough people on the internet that'll like you. But the pop world is very different. You're talking, you know, it's a production. And I like the way that you put it out. It's almost like every song's a show or a theater piece or drama is an element in this, right? And that's something that I discovered along my journey is that the, the classics, the shit that transcends time and gets that timeless quality has that more mm -hmm. theater quality. And I'm into albums. I love albums that tell stories. I've looked at both Biggie albums. I've looked at the first Lil' Kim album. So I'm telling you, I've reviewed your work. I didn't know I reviewed your work mm -hmm. back then, but I've actually reviewed your work. So I'm I saying that like, straight up, it's fucking incredibly and impeccably timeless. This it's look as much as Biggie's dope. That's not what makes these records last forever. It is the sound of these songs being perfect 
that makes the record last forever. And That's why it's called production. It's a production. Though. You're literally doing layers and there's stages to it. You know, there's coming up with the idea, finding the right beat, then spitting the right thing on the right beat, you know? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's involved because you'll scrap a lot of stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I like this idea. And you know who's really, who's really a genius? I mean, who does that a lot is Nas. Like Nas is like a true like writer. So there's like three songs that I've been involved with, with him that never came out and I've never heard them. You know what I'm saying? Because he starts it out and he has a great idea. He might have a chorus, he wrote a verse. But he never gets back to it because he's on to the next thing. And he's like, yeah, while it was good, I wasn't really feeling it like that. You know what I'm saying? So it becomes incomplete, which is probably why he has the lost tapes. Those <laughs> are probably those type of songs. You understand? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, like you're just like walking us through like the shit you would just find on the Internet casually, just like it's nothing mm -hmm. to you. Like, that's crazy, dude. Um, I'm. I'm just want to thank you again for the gift you've given me for this conversation because so far yeah, this, fine, like we're I, over two hours in, dude, myself. and I'm like I just feel like you've upped my knowledge game to a degree I was beyond my expectations. I was excited beyond my expectations. So thank you again. I feel I have to keep thanking you to show people that that's important when people give you big gifts like the knowledge nuggets you've dropped on us. But let's go back to cool stories. Anything else you can share? Because this era is crazy. Like, what is it like mm -hmm. being around Bad Boy while they're taking over the it's fucking great. music um, industry? To, uh, some of the my white favorite. parties. The white parties, none in the hand. <laughs> yes, please. Big no, Zoo, feel true. free to get him to tell these stories. He doesn't think any of this shit is a big deal. That's oh why it's hard. Oh my gosh, Nunzio. The big deal stories. He'd be like, uh, the one where Biggie gave me a blunt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, yeah to be yeah, fair, to be fair, let's talk about the one where Biggie gave you a blunt because that's as cool okay. as probably <laughs> all the other ones. Because this is a realization story for me, right? So you got, um, we were going to the Palladium and um, Funkmaster Flex was spinning. And um, they had some new music to, for him to play at the Palladium, which is always a great thing. You know what I mean? New music nobody's heard before, but you know it's so hot. It's like the crowd's going to fucking love this. So he definitely was at the studio. Everybody comes through. You got Total, Black Rob, The Locks, uh, uh, all the Junior Mafia, Little Kim. And, and then you got all of the pe people that, uh, that, that come with that. You know what I mean? On a bunch of people. You know what I'm saying? So where it's like a, a celebrity fest in that mouth. Like D-Rock. So yeah, exactly. So you got to understand, <laughs> Menzio, I am a 33-year-old so, dude. You are listing. Li you are listing the people that were basically my inception to fucking hip hop, and you're just like, like you got to understand. This is where like, because yo, yo, New York, because New York has this a different perspective. This story explains it too. So I'm, you know, I'm already in awe of Biggie. And um, my, we're like, yo, he got a huge jar of weed from Branson. Branson shows up. We already know what that means. And you might know of Branson from Red Man comments. He does not, he know. He does not know what that means. No, I don't know what anything means. No, no, All right. So no, no, no. Branson, more Branson is on, basically kind of either. Yeah, all I don't, right, I don't know what a Palladium is. I don't know what that is. I'm not going to lie. Okay, I was like so a Google Brand later moment. All right. So you get weed in 
plastic <laughs> jars or in bags, right? Yes. Branson is like the upper echelon of weed in, in New York at this time. Like he's got a bunch of celebrity clients and he puts his weed in the in the sealable jars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that you would put preserves in. Which was to me was genius because we had never seen. And this that. is in 1995, right. before the marijuana industry as we know it yeah. exists. So before anybody was ever doing any of this stuff that exists now, that guy was doing it then for the celebrities in New York City in 1995. Apparently, Branson's right? also on the 24 Hours to Live track. Is def is a place he's actually mentioned from uh, CB Mac, who's watching on my side of things. Uh huh. Yo, on a lot of songs, dude. So Branson comes by, he brings him an ounce in one of those jars. But now everybody in the studio, for some reason, nobody had any weed. So Big is just giving out weed to all these people. So myself and two of the other assistants, we get together. My boy Coco actually knows Big. So we like, yo, let's get like some money together and ask him for some weed. Coco's like, bet, let's do that. We get $20 together, and then we like, here, Coco. Coco's like, nah, yo, I always do it. When do y'all do it this time? And everybody's like, ah, like, ah, come on, dude. You like, you know him, like, like that and all of this. So long story short, I end up being the person that got to go in and do it. So it's just him and Little C's in the room, big-ass jar weed sitting in the middle of the table, and they both smoking joints by themselves. So I walk in and I'm like, yo, big, um, could I get like $20 worth of weed out of the, the jar and all of this? And then he looked at me like mad, like, what? He's like, yo, man, don't ever be coming in here waving money trying to get weed from me and all this. So I'm like, oh, shit, like this nigga set me up. Like, I feel bad. Like, he's about to yell at me. And he's like, yo, dude, we family. Put your hand in the jar and grab some. Like, that's what's up. You know what I mean? Like, don't ever do that. Don't be coming in here begging for weed and shit. Like, grab some, dude. We family. Like, smoke. And I was like, oh, shit. But, you know, me being the person I am, I ain't grabbed. I just grabbed enough for us to fucking smoke, like, two L's. You know, which is what we was trying to do. You know what I mean? And the funny shit is, when we went to the Palladium... He, he came up to me like, yo, do you have any other weed you took left? I was like, nah, I only took some so we could smoke then. He was like, eh, because he ran out, you know what I'm saying, in the Palladium. So I was like, damn, I should have grabbed more. I'd have been the man, uh, you know what I'm saying? Because I would have had that shit. I got a question. What's a Palladium? The Palladium is the greatest fucking hugest spot as far as hip-hop goes at the time. It was right on 14th Street, and it was downtown, and it was just a huge fucking space, two floors. There's like a balcony area, stadium seating on that balcony area, and everybody who's anybody would go through there at any given time. And the line, you could be waiting like an hour. You could have got there when the doors open and be online for like an hour, two hours. Okay. So I have another question because Big Zoo said a keyword that popped up to my young teenage self. So a big deal in my high school life was when Avril Lavigne showed up to a white party in a black outfit or something and he let her in. That was like big fucking headline news, right? And that's huge because, yo, I'm Canadian. 
Avril Lavigne is fucking royalty. Let's be real. She's mm-hmm. dope. She's also, fun tangent point, she has the 10th best-selling album international in Japan. Avril Lavigne outranks the Beatles or some shit. It's fucking nuts in that chart in Japan. Wow. Anyhow, uh, so tell us about the white parties if you were there because that's fucking insanity to me. I, I, don't, I don't really do white parties, but he throws a lot of parties. Okay. So... You know, if I'm not working, I'm at those parties. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing. So there's two that I'll tell you about. There's one that was just a pop-up, like, out of the blue. There was already a party going on, and Puff's in the studio. He's in a good mood. He's like, yo, everybody go to this address. So it's like people are piling cars, and we just go to the address. And when we get there, he goes to the front. Of course, he pulls up in, like, the limo and gets dropped off. He got a driver. You know what I mean? So he pulls up, gets dropped off in the front, signals everybody to come over, goes to the dude at the front door. I want to get all these people in, blah, 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 et cetera. No pat down. We good. It's me. And they're like, cool. So we all get in. We go inside, and the first thing he does is go to the bar, and he is like, yo, throws, like, 10 Gs on the, on the table, and it's like, all the drinks are free. For the rest of the night on me so it's now it's open bar everybody's getting drunk <laughs> and we drink we dancing it's mad chicks in there we having a great time i get a tap on my shoulder turn around robert downey jr yo you got anything any papers to roll in and i was like yeah actually i do and i pulled out some papers and he's like cool man he's with two badass black chicks i'm like damn this motherfucker like okay so I, I turn around, still chilling with my peoples. He taps me on the shoulder again. Yo, you trying to smoke? And I'm like, like, you're Robert Downey Jr. Hell no. Like, you're <laughs> all the drugs and the shit that you've been through? Like, I'm not taking that chance. No offense, but I'm like, yo, you fuck around. And we. this is a term that we use. I'm going to wake up in the morning with a cheeseburger in my mouth. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Which is a gay reference. Like, you're going to end up getting ass fucked and waking up with a pain in your ass. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I was definitely like, no, but I was like, holy shit, it's Robert Downey Jr. You know what I mean? But I found that to be uh, crazy, but that happened a lot. But one of my uh, great moments was also at the Palladium, and I'm with some friends of mine, Zoo included, and uh, Harv Pierre, who is the the head A&R, basically, of bad boy he walks up to me and he's like yo man like i want to thank you for everything you've done like you're a big part of the family you've helped us in so many ways etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like oh that's what's up like thank you and then he walks away and when he comes back he's got a bottle of moet and this is like four five hundred dollars in the club at that time and he has it on the bucket of ice with the glasses and everything and he brings it to me and is like, yo, this is for you. Thank you. Like, and I'm like, oh, shit. And in front of your friends, that's crazy. But in front of all of these other people, these women that you don't know, that is even more bananas. And then we're in there chilling and Puff walks up with Bobby Brown and does the same shit. Like, oh, what's up, yo? And after Bobby he left, and it was like, Ding, 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 ding. We were like superstars. All these chicks is like, who, who, who the fuck is they? Girl yeah, walks up, can I have some Moe? And we're like, nah. <laughs> why, are you, why, are you in, 
Yo, why you ain't let me get no Moe? <laughs> Yo, but Harv Pierre also very famously sang, um, I dare you. Yeah. You come I for me. Come Yo, Yo I'm not, by the way, I'm one of the, as, as somebody from that era that was like young and like looked up to all that, I thought that Harv Pierre on the hooks was dope as fuck. Yeah. I love yeah. Joe Hooker's sound. Joe Hooker. Joe Hooker. Everybody it. who I grew up around hated him and hated that sound because they hated Bad Boy, right? Because Bad Boy was the most successful thing. Yeah. So everybody just like hated on everything that they did. And he in particular, they hated it on really hard. And I was just like, what are you talking about? This so lit. Like he sounds dope. Like yeah. he sounds like, you I don't know, care if he's you, a professional singer or not. He sounded dope. You brought up a good point though too, Flacco. It's like when none was working at Daddy's house, it was also, you know, the golden age of also a lot of the like J Rue to damage a company flow. Oh, did so you work with company flow? Like, say again, I now I worked with artists that LP had on Def Jooks. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that was, and you worked with um, Vast Air, cool worked with ASAP Rock. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying, is, you worked with ASAP Rock. The thing was that yeah. it was like none was working almost for like the dark side of the force at the time. Yeah, they were, they were, yeah. they were, they were. Working they were. for Puff. I mean, Big, Big evened it out because we was all enthralled by Big. I got to meet Big, well, saw Big. One time, this is when he was, um he had a Redland Cruiser. I was outside waiting for none to come out. And this is when he was messing with Charlie Baltimore. Ah, Charlie. What I was interested in was we were all playing music by like, all of the super underground, like super gritty underground people, but none was working for arguably, you know, the, the shiny suit guy. You know what I'm saying? It was a mm -hmm. weird position. Yeah. From it, because a lot of what he said, those late night little Kim sessions when she wouldn't show up, like none would call us at like three in the morning. Like, yo, can you come to the studio in the next 30 minutes? And we would just break night using that level of studio. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was a beautiful time, you know? Yeah, it definitely like was. We, we had cracked the code, you know? Like, we were, you know, we were, in my mind, we were like the lowliest underground fat beats, rapidy rap dudes working in a little Kim session. You know what I'm saying? It was like a weird... Crazy. Thing. Yeah, it was crazy. crazy. And by the way, I think that, like, you were probably mentioning those names because those names, J. Rue the Damager, Company Flow, it wasn't that they were necessarily directly hating on Biggie and Bad Boy, but it was like they were part of what waved the, they were kind of the artists that other people who weren't a fan of those, of Bad Boy being number one, they were the artists that kind of waved that flag of like, it's not true. everybody but is now, that. But J. Rue did have a record though. J. Rue had- Yeah, no, he did. One It's called One Day. And he tells like a story rhyme about how like Diddy, had hip hop kidnapped or some shit. Yeah, so I remember he that. Does, he goes out formally. Yeah, camp had one too. So, but, I mean, um, also weren't kind of like most in quality. Like there was like controversy. Like you know, and and like you guys probably speak to this, but they they I think one of the major songs that kind of like everybody gravitated to at the beginning was the one where they kind of were telling a story, and it was as if though. Most people took it as if though Puff was the assailant in the story. 
Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had a lot of those, dude. Freaking, I've been to Faith's house and chilled, smoked with her. There's definitely had a crazy connection with Black Rob to the point, like, uh, he was locked up. He got signed to Bad Boy and got locked up. Mm. And then when he got out, he was crashing at the studio a lot because he didn't really have a place to go. All that money was gone. And I, I used to record him late at night. So when he finally got the opportunity and he gave him Woe, after he did Woe and they put that out, all of the records that I have recorded with him late night, they pulled all those reels out like, yo, we got to make this album. So, like, I'm partly responsible for him being able to put a record out that fast because I would fuck with him late at night. You know what I mean? Like, yo, let's just record. You got shit to do. I got you. Yo, this is insane. I just have to, like, I want to keep talking about this timeline, but you said Aesop Rock, and you got to understand, like, that to me is, like, the geekiest shit ever. Like, I'm just on the other end. Aesop Rock's last album is my best performing organic video that people cared about because people, like, fucking love Aesop Rock, all right? So I don't know how popular he is everywhere, but I want to hear everything you can tell me about working with that guy because that guy is fucking something else, okay? He's, uh, okay, so there's only one person that I would put above him as far as writing goes and, and, and as far as quickly and then delivering it, like, excellently. You know what I'm saying? Because his wordplay is bananas, and that's Jean Grey. Jean Grey is the oh only God, other person wonderful. I've had in the studio that could just write some shit out, and then when she spit it, you'd be like, how the fuck you just write that? Like... Like, nah, you had some ideas. Like, there was, like, some notes on the paper or something. She'd be like, nah, I just wrote it. Like, be like, what the fuck? He's one of those. You know what I'm saying? Like, wordplay, phenomenal. And, you you know, it's, it's it's uh, I don't want to call it nerd rap, but it's intelligent rap. Like, it is nerd rap. I, I if you don't know shit, shit, you're not going to understand what the fuck he's telling you. You know what I mean? You can Can't know shit, dummy. and nobody knows what the fuck. The Aesop Rock fan base is a bunch of people divided on what the fuck he means. And as an album reviewer... Yo, I get like fearful. I have to add prefaces like, yo, listen, guys, listen, I know I don't know. I'm just guessing. And then people tell me in the comments and literally nobody agrees. I'm like, it's nuts. So like, it's a fair assessment. Yeah, and that's on purpose. Speaking of, I mean, I'm going nerd rap, but I'm also um, pivoting into white guy rap. Do y'all fuck with this um, artist named Cage? Cage. <laughs> you guys in Quebec aware of Cage? So I don't because like I'm on mm -hmm. basically spent four years catching up on culture, but most people I believe fuck with him who care about underground. Anybody that cares about underground cares about him and is quick to throw him in the Eminem chat like fucking fast. Like they're just instantly brought together as names saying Eminem stole it from Cage. Like that's a stock sentence in my life. I've heard oh, it wow. okay. I've heard it like five hundred times, no lie. So there is, um, there is, I guess, like a shock rap factor to Cage that I could see people um, aligning with Eminem. But what's interesting is a lot of Cage's shit is just real stories from being fucked up in a mental institution. He's telling ill stories. But um, early Cage shit is, I was heavy. I'm a super big fan. Um, and he had a. He yeah, saw Agent song Orange. The, the Clockwork mm -hmm. Orange. Yeah. The Clockwork Agent Orange. Yeah. Orange. yeah the that, that record is bananas. I mean, anywhere to start with cages. A that, that record, that record was big, big in New York City's underground. I got it off of Stretch and Bobito mm -hmm. one night, and and I took it to my boy, who at high school, who like just 
you know, same as me, was into underground shit, and like we were like blown away, like what? It was the 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 brain was infected by devils, yeah, little thing that was just like what? <laughs> People said his brain was infected by devils. Man, yeah, that's just crazy. Biok, I just I gotta go back to Aesop Rock because I'm really curious about what it's like to work with him beyond just his quick writing. It's ability. great, dude. Like this is what I mean, like. Like I said, you know, you treat people like they're regular people and they will be regular people around you. He's mm. a fucking great dude. Like, and he's a phenomenal talent. And that's what made it really good for me was I wasn't really up on him when he came to the studio and I recorded him. Which, you know which tracks saying? did so you do? When, huh? Which tracks? Oh, I couldn't you? even tell you, dude. I've done so much recordings and stuff. Like naming tracks is like out the question. Okay. You're on a track with him, none, no? Are you on huh? a tr- are you on you, a track? You're on a track. Oh with no, 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 no. I'm not on the you're track. I, like there was a lot of Def Juke stuff that came through my doors but like, as the dojo. That's fair. Oh, I thought you were on a track. I thought that's what Carnage was saying the other day. Oh no. Nah. I mean, no. you know, we uh we got along and the stuff he did, I just was like, yeah, dude, like you're really I'm bugging that I haven't copped your freaking records. Like, I'm fucking up. Like, <laughs> you but know what I'm saying? Like, this is it around. was like a realization for me. Do you know around what year it was? Like, just the era that this happened? Um, So, it had to be around 2005, 2006. Okay. I'm going to say 2005, though. That's very cool. I, I appreciate that. Um, honestly, thank you for sharing, man. Just the fact that you shared that he's able to, you know, come through and do that quick. Like, you don't understand. Like, I, I honestly thought he took time, right? Because I've been looking. Just- he might. I mean, I've I've done pre-written stuff with him, too. But the day he came and wrote something, I was just like, fuck. But the fact that he's able to do what he does like that, and you're vouching that he's number two with only Gene Gray being number one. <clears throat> which is also fucking incredible to share with the internet. You got to understand, like, this kind of stuff doesn't exist. You try to Google this shit, where the fuck am I going to find it? It's just not there. I have tried, dude. It doesn't exist. That's a big fact. That's a big fact. And you know what? I want to take a real quick second. Like, that's why I was really adamant about this because, like, it's really important to just document all of this shit. And, like, there is no documentation. That's why I'm like telling you nuns, like you gotta break down palladium. You gotta break down, you know, cause people don't watch. So many. That's the thing know. is like, I've definitely been blessed the whole time because I've got errors. I had an era where I was performing with hardcore groups and the freaking beat nuts, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? I got an era before that where I was just seeing people before they were popping, you know and what I mean? So, and they're like most humbled state, like their early goings, so I think, you know, to recording the biggest stars in freaking daddy's house. You know, like, like I met freaking R. Kelly in there. Oh my God. When he did, um, I'm fucking you tonight. He didn't even record it in the studio with me, but Puff had him through and he's like, yo, oh, this is uh, Rashid over here, blah, blah, blah. He's like, hi, I'm Rob. And I'm like, Rob, R. Kelly, you're R. Kelly. Like, what the fuck? Like, what's up? Oh you know what God. I'm saying? Like, so, it's great. 
honestly though i just appreciate you nunzio and first of all i want to get through the whole story i don't care how long it takes if we have to do seven of these nunzio allow me to be clear mm-hmm. yeah because this this see this this hasn't even gotten to end of the week Nah, that's why I'm because I'm like we're we're in. I don't want to end anytime soon. That's not where I'm going with it. This is saying that this there is nothing more fun I could picture myself doing tonight in this moment than having this conversation with you. And I say that with all sincerity. Like I was appreciate it. Nah, for real, dude. And I know there's people watching on multiple platforms and multiple streams, and everybody sitting there going, "What the fuck?" Because I know that I just wanted to add a little context piece that I noticed something when I talked to the New York guys. You guys see the world of hip-hop in a very different lens than, say, me, right? I am, in a lot of ways, a very different market, a demographic, and a way of seeing the entire world. And for a lot of us, which is probably everybody not from New York, we're looking in. And you're just part of it. It's inherent and second nature to you. So stuff that you downplay in your mind, like insignificant story pieces, is context i look for as an album reviewer as i go i have a show called the classic quest where and we're a little derailed right now but once a week we do a classic album from all eras we've done 156 of them now and we're going to keep going as much as we can and because it's just delightful but when we do get hit in the comments it's often because of stuff like not knowing what the fuck it is to be in new york you go listen to like wallabies bars on a wu-tang record and you you literally do have to buy riz's book to know what the fuck that's important right like that's actually what happened i had to buy the wu-tang manual to understand wu-tang bars because the wu-tang fans are assholes and i don't really like talking to them in the comments but i respect their fucking vigilance and dedication so it's big love in me calling them assholes but it made me step up my knowledge game so that they weren't mean to me anymore because they're fucking mean and i don't know I don't know what that means because I'm from Montreal, <laughs> right? That that's that's mean, like words, man. and you read blog articles and stories, but it doesn't mean you know, anything to me. I got one for you with Wu Tang. Let's do so it. We went, we went to Mizu uh, and a few of our friends went to uh, the very first performance of them in the, in Manhattan, right? So we were we were mad geeks, super excited. I don't even remember the other people on the freaking stage. You know what I mean? We were just hyped to go see them. And no lie, dude, like 70% of the crowd before they came on, all of a sudden all had woo shirts on. Like all these t-shirts came out and people threw them on on top of their shit. And we were just like, oh shit, like there's a gang in this motherfucker. And yo, no lie, two chicks is standing next to us and they rolling up the blunt. Like, oh, this shit about to go down. They got the woo shirts on and everything. And yo, they lit that shit and it came mad close to Zoo arm. And he was like, oh shit. Like, and looked at her and pulled his arm back. She's like, oh, don't worry, baby. I ain't gonna burn you. Like all of it. Yo, these was hard, yo. I was like, yo, <laughs> this shit is crazy. But you know, as soon as they so, started performing. So I just gotta ask one window, thing. Because we're streaming live to Twitch and they have some policies. Oh, my bad. That B word is probably one we should dodge in the context you used it just because of rules made by social media platforms and so i would add in also uh lgbtq stuff anything related to Mm -hmm. that world just be cautious with language use i'm just just for the safe you know we don't want to get in trouble it's not a problem let's i just anyway sorry to interrupt you uh but keep going because this is delightful dude 
Mm-hmm. But like, well, as soon as they started performing, we were just all into the performance. But it was definitely phenomenal. And then when they get to the Sue, yo, the whole crowd, it's like your ears was buzzing. Like, oh shit, like so many, it was so loud, dude. But that, you know, that goes to show you their organization. You mm. know what I'm saying? They would bring half of Staten Island to the freaking Manhattan. So it didn't even matter if you knew who they were or not. After seeing the amount of people that had the shirt and then they they already got the the albums and the records on Smash. But to go to a show and have 70, 80% of the crowd be cheering for them and all this, even if you don't know them, you're going to be like, yo, I got to get this. Like, this is a phenomenal performance. It just, it just alters your whole state. Like, I have to be a part of this. So did y'all hear what he you just know? said there? That was huge, beyond the cool story of being at the Wu-Tang show and seeing what they did. But I have a story that I can match with about Montreal history a little bit. So back in the days, there's this cat who goes by the name, uh, he currently goes by 1990V and previously Mac Vibes. And Mac Vibes got signed. He got a lot of attention at like 18 years old. And I can tell you how it was because I was performing in the bars back when he was getting his buzz on. And I can tell you what it was. We was performing at bars that did not card and they were 17. Do you know what 17-year-olds are willing to do? Go anywhere that will let them drink. So he could show up at every crowd with 30 tickets sold. It didn't really matter what he sold like. And I'm not going to say names about quality because actually the dude is an extremely talented guy. I think he's a fantastic guy. He's currently on some melodic trap shit. And he was actually dope back then. And uh, But it was more important is that he could bring 30 people to a show. And especially when there's only a capacity of 100. You bring 30 people and they're your boys. Oh my gosh. He got signed. Mm -hmm. So you just, and you know who else? Wu-Tang did that. And you also added a layer that we did not add. And none of us really think about is branding. I barely even have fucking merch, right? I never even thought about that. But you brought up such an important point. It wasn't just that there was a large army there. They were a uniform in support of the squad. And I think a lot of people nowadays on their solo grinds and efforts forget about the power of community. And one of the things that's attractive about end of the week and what y'all have built is the community angle. Like y'all like have diehards, okay? Y'all have people who it's almost bamboozling how diehard it is to me as a person who's new to this like little being here just watching it, right? End of the week Quebec is going big in your honor. I watched fucking debates about your honor going on. Yo, that's how big your community is. You, I don't even know if you guys saw it. It doesn't matter. That's how big it is. I know it's in other countries because I fucked with this guy in Switzerland and whatever. So all that is ties into the power of community. And that without... Because Wu-Tang is fucking forever, okay? Like, it doesn't matter what country you're in. They are one of the biggest brands that exist in the world. It is beyond hip-hop. I know people who've never listened to a song who bumped that W and have no idea what it means. They just know it's the W and it's dope. And how did that happen? Because I bet they got a fuck ton of footage, and you shared this with us, of moments like that, where they had a bunch of guys with W's on, a crowd of people had their back, probably knew all the fucking words to their tracks. Wow, do you know what you shared with us there? Everybody watching this just learned everything that I just said there. Holy shit. Thank you, sir. And then then that's the beauty of it, because once we get to end of the week, that's what we were doing. Live performance-wise, there was nothing better that you could see on stage. That's like, crazy, you know, man. And, and you don't even know us. You know what I'm saying? <sighs> and we were still, like, the freaking highlight of a freaking show. That's why, like, Rocksteady, you know about Rocksteady? Uh, no, not really. Okay, so 
Let's talk about Rocksteady. So just like uh, the Quando's place I was telling you about with Rosie Perez, Rocksteady was the annual outdoor. It, It was always outdoors somewhere in New York. And it would have the top ranked, your Fat Joe's, you know, MOP, I mean, KRS definitely did uh, one. Uh, there's so many names to name, Master Ace, etc. But then you would have the people coming up. So you would see most Def and Talib as Blackstar before you oh, even knew that Blackstar was coming out. You know what I'm saying? And this was the and this was an annual event. So we were always geared up to go. I know. I remember that was the first time I saw a brand Nubian. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were like, well, what is this? We knew who Grand Poopa was, but we didn't know the other two guys. We didn't know who Sadat X was. You know what I'm saying? That's and, fair, And man. it was like, we saw all of this take place. Lord Jamar, you know what I'm saying? Like, you would see so many people. Like, uh, definitely, um, and we said him earlier, Lord Finesse was a staple. Oh, my that. gosh. You know what I'm saying? So it was like you would just see the best MCs up and coming as well as established and then they would be on stage together so it was the greatest so you know eo dub we ended up hosting that no and shit. it was because that it was pretty much that was that it was with us you All gotta right. put on a show when when you're when people give you their attention like you gotta keep their attention and the only way to do that is to be dope you I, know what i'm saying so i do love what you're saying so I feel like we're definitely going to have a part two. And I feel like you kind of yeah, want to talk about end of the week. And we can go back to the bad boy era and get more stories in the future. But I want to give love to end of the week. Honestly, I think it's amazing that y'all made this. And is that the next part of the story? Is there something between bad boy and end of the week? We should maybe go a little sequentially. But is what comes next after bad boy and all of that? Because we're going to so, come back uh, in the future. This is what I'll say before and we could cut it after that, right? So Bad Boy, Great Era, um, made it all the way to 2000. And then um, this dude, Mario Winans, had um, come into the the studio. He was using it a lot. I used to do late night sessions with him. But every time Puff would leave, he would leave. So it's like Puff comes in, y'all need you to finish these two songs and do this and do this. And he'd be like, bet, bet, bet. But he's a dude that wants to go out and hang out and party and do all of that. I will give it to him. Skilled musician. Definitely taught me the five hat trick, which I've mentioned on the beat challenge before. But he would leave as soon as Puff was gone and the car was out from in front of the the building. He was out the door. Like, I'm going to this party. I'm going to go do this because I can't. So eventually Puff was getting on him about it. And he told Puff it was my fault because I was using the equipment late at night and shit wasn't working. And then he didn't feel like waiting and it would fuck with his, his whole aura and timing and he would have to get out of there. You know what I'm saying? So Puff called me in his office and was straight like, look, man, you can't use the equipment no more late at night. And I was like, cool, then I can't work here anymore. And he was like, what? I was like, yo, no offense, but like I get paid nicely and all that. At that time, it was like 40 bucks an hour as an engineer. And that that's good money at that time. But I was like, Yo, that's it just, takes up my time. And if, if I can't also, uh... use the equipment and do me, like, it's not really worth it to me. Then I'm just absorbing everything everybody else is doing. You know what I'm saying? 
And it's like, I got my own shit that I want to do. If I can't do that or express it, then I'd rather not work here. You know what I mean? And he was cool with it. Mm -hmm. But that's how that relationship ended. But uh, Zoo was getting married in, in July. And this had happened probably towards the end of May, right before June. So I remember because he did, he we did his wedding, you know, and then when he went on vacation, when he came back on his honeymoon, I should say, when he came back, he called me up like, yo, they want uh, me and you to host with these guys eye to eye, who we already knew from doing shows. Who are and, the guys and, uh, of eye to eye? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, Vice Versus and Prolific One and Ego Trip. You know, there was three of them at the time. So they were like, yo, we want you five to co-host with each other an open mic. It was the idea of a guy named Joey Ty. Joey Ty also spun at his, um, at Zoo's wedding as the DJ. So when he came back and called me and told me that, I was like, oh, bet, that's what's up. Like, I'm with that. And honestly, like, Joey, Joey Ty never made it. He got diagnosed with cancer. And unfortunately, he passed away, uh, I think, six or seven months after we started um, end of the week. But uh, Vice brought Scram Jones, and we started off in Baby Jupiter. And then a whole new era in my life freaking began. And it was like, I've always had this happen, but... Every every time I have a little errors in music and the things we were doing, you know, the doggy dog was one of them. You know, the go, performing on stage with them was a whole nother one. Actually going to see people before they got, were up and coming was one of them. Um, but definitely after Daddy's House, end of the week was the next era that started in my musical life. And to me, is is one of my favorites. All right, so like, I, have a... I love I I love the fact that I worked for Bad Boy and met all these people, cool people. Still love them to this day. But the the end of the week is like, like we we did what what nobody would uh, give us or the break we would get um, in the industry. We gotta talk so, about this. So what's the birth date of end of the week? Let's start the story. What's the birth date? Where does it begin? I don't know if Big Zoo knows this. He's on it's the call. The That's third, what I asked. I, I, I could look it up, but it's the third Sunday in two in 2000. That's good enough. That's a good enough. Third Sunday in August of 2000, and that's when we always anniversary is the, the third Sunday in August. That was the first night we met and started at Baby Jupiter, as Ra shared, and then... We spent a long time at Baby Jupiter, then we went to the Pyramid, and then we went international, and that's how we have this family now. But August of 2000. Thank you so um, much. Mm -hmm. All right, so tell us about the beginnings of this and what your experiences were Oh, no, like. we'll save that for part two, because that's going to take too long. That's a whole well, so yeah. other era. Whole another era. But I will say this. Um, on Facebook, it's Nunzio. N-O-N-E-Z-E-O. -E -E I post a lot of stuff that End of the Week is doing, as well as a lot of new music that's coming out that you should all check out. And I also have a GoFundMe going on that I'm going to promote to for my studio. I'm more than halfway there, but I still need help to reach to the final goal so I could uh, 
set up some Clean more uh, video wise, making this place more, um, I don't even know what to call it, but improving upon the studio that I have now yeah. to the point where we could do live performances in here. So here's so. what's up. We're going to link that everywhere we can on our side of things. A hundred percent. I personally donated. So that's how much I yes, believe in your shit. You, I'm not, I'm not even saying it for credit for you. I'm saying it to validate anybody watching this. It's more on that end. That's how much I put up and I'm in Canada. So I had to put up 50 us dollars. That's extra in Canada, right? Because the numbers big difference, but that's how much I believe in your shit, dude. I think you're that talented and I think you're that cool with it. And uh, I don't know. I just think everyone should put that up because this man is a legend. Yeah, I don't know if you heard the stories that he talked about on this. And again, I don't even want to end the call. I'm happy to keep going as long as you fucking want to keep going, dude. For me, I got nothing else to do except play video games. So trust, this is far more interesting. I do understand <laughs> if you have other things to do. And I respect No, I do. That. I gotta, I actually have to record somebody in Which, about 14 minutes. So I totally appreciate that. And I'm happy to wrap up. And I love that you gave us this much of your time. And anybody that wants to, you know, shoot the shit a little bit after to wrap up and, you know, just discuss, we can totally do that as well. Because Nunzio, that was a gift, man. That was a gift. I don't know how else to express it. This is going to be one of the most memorable moments of my life because this is going to be my first big interview thing ever. My interview Dude, I, you know what? Uh, a friend of mine said this to me, too. Like, uh, and, and this is funny, too. Like, he was like, yo, dude, you like uh, Black Forest Gump? He was like, you remember when, that, when he was running and doing the marathon and then he wiped his face and then the dude had the smiley face? He was like, that's the type of shit you do, man. You don't even realize it. Like, you be helping people out, and then phenomenal things happen from the little bit of advice or the little nudge that you gave them. And, and one example that I'm going to give is a dude named Ariel Borajal, who worked at the studio. And he started out there, and he didn't know much, but I'm like, yo, I'll teach you whatever you want to learn. And I was, matter of fact, uh, after hours, when people aren't here, let me know. We can work on stuff. And, you know, I used to literally go to those, all of those places. I would go and hang out and see new talent. I would approach the new talent like, you know, I work at daddy's house and I would like to get you in the studio. Amazing. You know what I mean? A, a good example of this is a group called Hydra, which is GMS, LR Blitzkrieg, and Wild Child. LR Blitzkrieg actually has a project out now with Bad Seed called the Sixers, which you should check out because that shit is fire. But um, definitely they performed and from the performance I saw, I was like, this is dope. Like, yo, I got the studio, y'all should come in. And yo, they came in, did like a five, six hour uh, session, but that was practice for Ariel so that he could get his stuff up. Ariel Barajal now has four Grammy plaques for mixing in, in, the, in this world. Amazing. Yo, for artists. Like Nunzio. And I, I can't don't... tell you the artist that he did it with, but yo, my man has four Grammy plaques for the mixing that he's done on albums. I really appreciate everything you've shared, man. And I really want to talk to you again. I also want to talk to Big Z. I want to talk to everybody I can talk to. But because this is a video and it's a production, and on my end, I have some supporters. We got to do a little outro bit, right? Because that's just the way it is. Because this is a video after the fact. Um, so, yo, thank everybody watching this for real reals. I mean, even if on the live you stick around, whatever's follow us at, you know, twitch.tv slash the EOW channel. We're going to have everything linked on our end. I don't remember the channel. My channel's behind that suit. So we're going to be streaming this live every 
everywhere because it's about building that community on the internet. So make sure that you do follow the end of the week channel, you know, make sure that you go support their live pages because they have a fucking thing running all the time. This is on their channel for the people on my side of it watching. This is hosted by them. This is in cuts. Why I have their logo on my screen right now because they are in collaboration with us on this. This is a big group effort, international things, right? That's why it's called bridge the gap. It's about making bigger connections. Okay. So thank you all for watching this and being here for this amazing episode one. All right, we got an episode two lined up. That's a very exciting thing. As soon as I can get the public confirmation to announce it to people as I will, I don't know if that can be done right now, but it's going to be amazing. And then the third episode is lined up and we're going to keep it running because it's about bridging that gap of knowledge. So thank you all for watching because without you folk being here, What's the point, right? Like you guys are here. That's what we're sharing the knowledge with. Thank you for giving us your time like that. If you did like it yeah. on the likable platforms, like it. Follow on the followables, subscribes on the subscribables, whatever, whatever we put this on, etc. And uh, on my end, special thanks to the patrons. Ismail Gadamsi, Chris Pato, Jonathan Barnes, DJ Black Hurricane, Linda Williams, and Scribble. They're dope. They support what we do. And we got to shout them out in every episode of what we do because they give us love like that. And that's just how it is. Um, and again, uh, that, that's about it for the intro. I do like to end my shit with a live long and prosper. That's just what it is. But we can keep talking for your, as much time as you want to give us. And uh, thank you, man. It's a verse, too. Is it? That's amazing. That's pretty fucking Two cool. Beans, baby. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I know that's really important. I don't understand why it's important. And I know that's a bigger conversation oh, for another day. One, and I really look yeah, forward to that. The next episode. The whole end of the week is another two-hour freaking episode, bro. Nah, this is more like three hours, which is beautiful to my ears, dude. Wow. We can push. Honestly, in my opinion, the four-hour ones are the best because that means it's so good that you just keep going. And I'm telling you, I was I was craving a good conversation like this, okay? I was cra I had a guy who got a little too drunk. I got a guy who got a little too high. And you, you kind of were like perfect. This was like in my hand. You were like the ideal fucking guest, okay? And Big Zoo... You played great affiliate roles. And the other guy whose voice was there earlier, I don't know who he is, but he was also there. We should shout him out. Who is it? Damian Burns. That's he's cool. a producer. He produced some stuff with us. And he's like a real into the hardcore and all this. He's one of the people I met through uh, mm. the hardcore scene too. So I felt like it was cool to just shout him out because he did participate and make it cool. Shout out Flacco Bale because without him, Gosh, he was the bridge of this gap because there was no way this right. is going down. I ought to love the Flacco Bale for everybody watching it because, yo, and let's be real, Liddy Bros, they dropped a Liddy project and y'all should go stream that shit. And, yo, check out my interview with Flacco Bale, self-plug in here. I'm just saying it's fucking Liddy. Um, and, yeah, that's just kind of like the culture we want is this. I want this all the time. The more I can get y'all sharing it. Yo, that's how people like me on even the white front get smarter and more educated on this shit because we learn. And it's so helpful that you gave us your time. I can't even stress it enough. I could probably say it more, but I think I'm being a little redundant at this point. So yeah, that's my that's it. I can't I can't think of what else to say outro wise. I don't know. I assume you have to go because it's eight minutes. So uh Yep. But thanks for having me, dude. Enjoyed myself and honestly can't wait for the next one. Let me know when we're doing it. I'll definitely clear up my schedule for it. I'm gonna let uh, Flacco and I figure that out. And I mean, he has some guests and ideas, and you know, I want to space some shit out. But also, you know, we want to get a big zoo episode in, maybe. You know, 
I, I feel like he, he might look a little enticed now. I'm just saying. And uh, that one might go eight hours. That's okay. We'll set it up. We'll make sure there's nothing <laughs> happening the next day. Uh, I don't know, man. Thank you. I feel like, in a sense, this was like a big moment for me in one of those eras. Like, you know how like you had your era moments? You gave me mm -hmm. like an era moment because, yo, the amount of things in this thing that can get cut the fuck up and put on YouTube to get us all buzz is ridiculous, dog. Do you know how yeah. many clickbaits you gave me? Do you know, I have a guy, <laughs> I have a guy who's going to edit the clickbaits and make sure that people see it all. And it's amazing, oh, dude. Man. So you Don't helped. forget to send them my way, man. We got, we Every got fucking too. episode is going to get that GoFundMe put on the bottom of it. And we're going to get you some fucking traffic, okay? That's what the yeah, fuck it is. Man, appreciate I'm going to make my designer, if he's still watching, because he's been fucking commenting the whole time, he's going to make a little end card that says, donate to this at the end of every one of this fucking episode. So make sure maybe you up your goal. I don't know. I don't have that kind of reach. Don't fucking listen to me like that. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> maybe maybe one or two people do give a thing because of the effort. That's what we're trying to do, though. You know what? That's all I can say. I don't know how effective I'll be, but by part two, I hope to get you more traffic. And by part five, I hope to get you even more traffic. And that's why we're going to build it out like this. That's what's up. Anyway, you know it. Thank you for making Bridge the Gap episode one the coolest shit I've done in a minute. No offense to all the oh, other interviewees. I'm always I down did. to come back, man. Anytime. Fair enough. I don't know if anyone wants to stick around and shoot the shit a little bit or if people want to dip off. I do know that Nunzio has to go. That's up to everyone else on this call because I know a couple of y'all are jumping in. But uh, I just want to say shout out to Aliyah too. Mm -hmm.